Every year that we talk about this, we seem to think there is less stuff going on. I don't think that's because there's less stuff going on. It's because you, Tim, especially since it's your show, and Nick and I are getting tired of hearing the same thing over and over again without any, you know, anything new coming out of it. Ladies and gentlemen, be And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalofAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. It is time for our annual look back at the past year in the world of ufology, Yes, I know it is mid-January, but bear with us because it does warrant a look back. And it is our annual tradition here with our guests, the original UFO mystics, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. These guys are not just two of my very good friends, but I also think that they are two of ufology's most original thinkers. And that's why I like having them on the program here to dissect the past 12 months in the world of UFO studies. Now, this is the third time around that we've done the Year in Ufology episode with Nick and Greg. And I noticed last year that it seemed like we were treading over a lot of familiar territory as far as stories go. UFO news seems to follow a sort of template. And as I look back on 2010, I noticed that that template was starting to fill in with the various stories that got reported in the paranormal press and in the mainstream media. So I wanted to break out of that mold And I wanted to do something a little bit different this year. So I tried to cherry pick the biggest stories of the year under different banners. So we've got the geopolitical UFO story of the year. The key sighting of the year. The big exopolitical or disclosure story of the year. Our annual in memoriam portion of the program. And stories that made an impact within the world of UFO studies amongst all the various researchers of the field. So those are kind of how I broke it down this year, rather than just simply go point by point, month by month, and talk about the same stuff we talk about every year here on the Year in Review. I want to go deeper this time around. I want to go more in-depth and really get to the heart of the matter, which is the state of ufology as 2011 begins. Having heard the interview, I'm very happy with the direction that this went because it really allowed us to sort of shake off the shackles of the specific story and get down to business on what it all means for ufology. With all that said, some of the stories you're going to be hearing about in this conversation include Stephen Hawking's warning about contacting aliens, China's big airport UFO event, the UFO nuke press conference, We're going to remember Zachariah Sitchin, Robert Miles, and others we lost in the past year. And we'll look at the Emma Woods controversy, as well as the shakeup at MUFON. Beyond the world of ufology, we also take quite a bit of time to look at the field of cryptozoology, as well as the Bigfoot mystery. 
and we'll cap it all off by looking at what might be the emerging esoteric trends as 2011 starts peering over the horizon. Altogether, given the change in format, this episode really is much, much less an interview and much, much more a conversation between three friends who share an interest in the UFO enigma and who are trying to get a better handle on where it stands as we begin 2011. Given that this is a double guest episode, we're going to save some time here and askew the bios for Greg Bishop and Nick Redfern. You can find them at BOA on the show page where you found this interview. That said, be sure to check out Greg's website, radiomysterioso.com, R-A-D-I-O-M-I-S-T-E-R-I-O-S-O.com. And check out Nick Redfern's website, nickredfern.com. And in addition to those two websites, you want to check out their joint venture, ufomystic.com. Pretty simple, all one word, ufomystic.com. You can find writings there from not just Greg and Nick, but also a host of other fantastic pundits on the world of ufology. With all that said, let's get down to business and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on December 28, 2010. Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop look at the state of ufology as 2011 begins on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to uh, the annual episode of BOA Audio that I guess you could call a two-drink minimum, because it's going to be really laid back and a lot of remembering and a lot of fun and a lot of laughs, and hopefully some insightful discussion, because we brought back our two annual year-in-review guests. They're not just two of the great thinkers in the world of ufology, but they're also two of my very good friends, not just in the world of the paranormal, but just in general. I really consider them both serious mentors to me in this crazy field, and I've more often than not called them up or emailed them for insight and advice on stuff for my own career and what I'm working on in new projects. So, I mean, they're, they've been just beyond helpful to me and become just great friends. And, of course, I'm talking about the UFO Mystics, the most powerful tag team in all of the world of ufology, Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. You can find out more from Nick Redfern at nickredfern.com. Greg's site mostly should be uh, radiomysterioso.com. Is that one good? Yeah, well, it's good. It's just that we have to recover from the Russian hacking before I get it back up. But I'm, I'm well on the way to doing that, so it's uh, it's uh, <laughs> it's coming. The new right. version is coming, and all the shows that have been in... Um, in the in the in the pipe till then will be uh, unpiped, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And of course, you can find out more from both of them at ufomystic.com. Nick's got a bunch of new books out in the last year. Sci-fi secrets carried over from last year. Also, Monsters of Texas, co-written with Ken Gerhard, and the big one, Final Events, that a lot of people have been talking about this year, as well as the recently released NASA Conspiracies. And people should know that Greg is, of course, the author of the outstanding book, Project Beta. If you haven't read that one, you are in the dark on a lot of serious insight into what's going on behind the scenes in ufology. So pick that one up by now, folks. Yeah, there's an update on that one this year, which we can get into during the show. Absolutely. Uh, not from me, though. From uh, It was an event this year. Oh, yes. I know what you're talking about, for sure. Yeah, that dude. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. That dude that in his dude. interview. <laughs> Um, so anyway, yeah, so you've already heard from Greg, and I think you've heard Nick laugh already, but welcome back to the program, guys. It's good to be talking to you, and I'm sure this is going to be a fast, losing fun episode. Well, thanks, Tim. Hey, Greg. 
Hey, hey there, Nick. I, I saw Nick recently. He, he came out for uh, to work on a documentary, to be in a documentary out here in California. Yeah, yeah, I've been following your, your posts about that and stuff. Well, that might be your answer here to the first question. I, I Having done this now, this is our third year, it was sort of like, I felt like last year we went over a lot of the same stories that happened in 2008, seemed to happen again in 2009. You could almost, like, hit them point by point, you know, like international UFO file release. Uh Nebulous UFO sighting, celebrity or important person speaks out on UFOs. It was sort of like the same story seemed to happen every year, so I kind of wanted to avoid that chronological thing that we've done the last couple of years to try and avoid this burnout situation and just hit on the major stories of the year and sort of parsed it down to about five to seven. And the first thing I wanted to do first, though, before we got into specifics, was find out, you know, here we are at the end of the year. What story or project that you're working on or trend in the world of the paranormal over the past year really most caught your attention or captivated you? You know, what, what sort of kept you going in the last year or at least, you know, piqued your interest, I guess you could say? You know, why don't you start it out, Greg? Well, it's horrible to start out with me because I, you asked me to be prepared for that when we came on. I can't think of any. And the reason for that is I don't see that anything new happened. Like you said, it was like uh, big sighting. Okay, what's that? China, I guess, um, or or New York, which turned out to be balloons, I guess. Um, you know, anything else? Uh, the, the 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 press club thing that was interesting because I know um, Robert Salas pretty well personally. I like the guy, and I think there's something to his story. Um, but for me, the only thing that really stuck out, I guess, was for me about the year was that I seemed to shut down, and I don't know why that was. I, I really don't. I seem to have shut down within about three or four months after Mac Tony's died, and I don't know if there's a causal relationship there or what, but um, I, 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 I talked to Jacques Vallée about 10 years ago when he wasn't doing anything for a while, and I said, why did you, why aren't you writing any more books? Why aren't you doing anything now? I mean, people like to hear your opinions and your thoughts. And and his simple answer, which I think was the entirety of the answer, was I was not learning anything anymore. And that's kind of how I feel about the UFO thing. I, you know, it, something really has to, you know, burn through all the normal dreck before it really um, makes me sit up and take notice. And to my mind, nothing did that for me personally. I mean, I'm more interested in the offshoots of ufology and things related to it, like the, the other paranormal phenomena, which I think are closely related, and also how we perceive things and how we, um, how our consciousness and our opinions and everything filter things before they get to our, our you know, our waking or, con you know, uh, what's, what's the word, our awareness, our waking awareness. And um, I think that's Probably at the core of the UFO problem is 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 the human mind, and it's not. I'm not, you know, original at all in thinking that. But a lot of people have come to that conclusion, and I think the answers will come from there. But from outside, from the stuff that's in the news, I can't think of anything. Like I said, yeah, yeah. I was kind of put on the spot uh, a couple of weeks ago when I did the the uh, the Bill and Nancy Burns show. They just sort of popped it on at me and asked me what I thought the biggest story was, and I was stumped for a while. So it was like this. Yeah, year, what did you really say it was? Um, I said the UFO nuke press conference probably was the biggest thing that you know, and I wouldn't even that wouldn't even be my answer to the question that I posed to you. You know, yeah. my answer would probably be like 
putting on the Exeter event was the most captivating thing for me <laughs> this year. Right, right. The reason I said the thing about the press club and the Chinese UFOs is people at work that kind of know what I'm into, even though I talk about it with them, they came over to my office and was like, hey, what do you think about those Chinese UFOs? I was like, yeah. Uh, some people cited some stuff. Oh, come on. What do you think about it? I was like, what do you want me to say about it? Nothing. It makes, you know, it really made no difference to most people. So I don't think it's really that horribly important. All right. Well, what about you, Nick? What, you know, what sort of lit your fuse this year or kept you going or, you know, you know, like I said, piqued your interest, if anything? Well, I mean, in many respects, I'm kind of, I, I guess, thinking in this along the same lines as Greg is. Um, you know, I think... Yes, there's been some interesting stuff this year, like the press conference and, you know, different sightings. But at the end of the year, the big question we have to ask is, did it actually advance our knowledge or understanding of the subject? Uh, or did it just mean we've got to go out and buy more filing cabinets because there's more reports? <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's, it's, that, it's the latter. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think it's like every year, you know, j just because there's more reports coming in, some people assume that means it furthers our knowledge. It doesn't. You know, it's like somebody who sort of, you know, I do a lot of cryptozoology work. Somebody runs around and says, I got 50 tracks of Bigfoot footprints last year made out of, you know... Um, plaster. Plaster, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and they somehow think that adds to their knowledge or an understanding of what's going on. Well, it doesn't. It just means the house is cluttered with another 50 plastic asks. <laughs> and that's, that's kind of how I view what's gone on this year in the whole UFO subject is that, yes, like you said at the beginning, you know, we've had more reports, we've had interesting file releases, but as interesting as sometimes, even I admit, you know, the files are interesting. Yeah, yeah. But we never get the smoking gun. We get... A ton of lights in the sky reports from the public in the declassified files, and three or four radar reports, and an occasional military pilot and a civilian airline pilot report. Well, my argument is, after sort of how many years of seeing these reports, what can we? How has it helped advance the subject? And I would say it hasn't advanced our knowledge, and that's that's the problem that I've found. You know, this year, it, it hasn't changed. You know, it's like, yeah, we got more reports, but what can we do with them? And that's why I guess, you know, from my perspective, I've been more sort of involved in in the writing side of things. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it's sort of historical stuff, like contactees, and I've just wrapped up the writing of a book on the men in black and, you know, and, and things like this. And it's... Looking back at it now, it's all been what I've done the last few years, been sort of very historical because I think, not because I think that's necessarily just where the answers are to be found, but, you know, it's kind of like I've gone back to try and look at the the, the formative cases and try and see what we can learn and, you know, discuss theories from them rather than simply saying, oh, you know, the fact that we had 20 flying triangle reports this year is significant when, you know, I don't really think it is. It doesn't. You know, we need to go back, I think, particularly to the sort of golden era of the subject when I think the phenomenon, whatever is behind it, was actually at its height. I think in some respects, there's good good argument for saying that the presence, at least, isn't at the level it was years ago. You know, we're getting a few reports here and there, and some of them are significant, but we're not getting huge waves. We're not getting vehicle interference cases. Even abductions aren't on the size they were, you know. Yeah. 
So I think we need to sort of go back and look for the answers there rather than just uphold the present day for the for the sake of upholding it. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I'm in agreement with both of you guys. It was very difficult to even come up with the stories of the year, if you will. And I mean, I've looked at a lot of in the last <laughs> well, in the last day, let's say, I've looked at a lot of you know year in review UFO articles, and it just seems like nothing really. You know, you could just take the number nine from 2000. I mean, yeah, take the number nine for 2009, just change it to a ten, and you wouldn't know the difference. So. It's kind of like we're in the same position we were at the end of last year, which is why I tried to change things up a little bit here. <laughs> we noticed that every year that we talk about this, we seem to think there is less stuff going on. I don't think that's because there's less stuff going on. It's think it's because you, Tim, especially since it's your show, and Nick and I are getting tired of hearing the same thing over and over again without any, you know, anything new coming out of it. Because when you first get into the subject, anybody if you take any notice of it at all, it's very exciting, and you're learning a lot of new things, and everything seems exciting. And then after you go through that process, less and less things excite you. Yeah. So I think it might be sort of a, if you want to call it a problem, of perception as well. That's not to say that we're that excited people are wrong or that we're wrong, but it's like any learning process. And what Nick said about the Bigfoot tracks, that also cued me to that, uh, what I just said about perception. The guy that got 10 more Bigfoot tracks thinks that it advances our knowledge because it happened to him and it advanced his knowledge. So he seems to think that it advances everybody's knowledge because it's important to him. But that's just human nature. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And kind of like to what Nick said, too, about the UFO file release and to tie it in what you're saying, it's like, yeah, the, the, the UFO file releases are, are interesting stories and they're great stories. And, and we could literally, you know, spend a long time talking about them. But at the end of the day... You could just cut, again, you could just cut and paste a lot of what we're saying onto previous years. So we really want to look at the big picture of what the hell is going on. And, you know, maybe it doesn't exactly encompass this year, but, you know, some of the stories might hint at a larger, I don't know, idea of where we're at, I guess you could say. That's sort of a roundabout, <laughs> roundabout segue into the first thing I wanted to discuss. So, like I said, I picked out about five stories and sort of broke them into big you know sections here so the first one was and I, the reason i picked this one is because it did stand out to me as sort of a unique story and that was that stephen hawking warned against uh humans contacting et's and this was in april on april 26th or so so about april of the past year i sort of put this under the geopolitical ufo hub if you will so you can throw out all the file release stories we don't need to talk about those um, you know, and, and, you know, in keeping with our theme here, we've also got, uh, I won't even go there, but the Vatican astronomer, he says he wants to baptize the ETs when they arrive. So he, he said that on September 24th. I'm not making that up, folks. No, so. I remember thinking what an asshole when he said it then. Yeah, yeah. So Vatican had their finger in the UFO pie once again this year. Uh, you know, once again, we can put them to the side. So let's talk though about this story, the Hawking warning against, Hawking warning against contacting ET. Because the reason I thought this was interesting is because you rarely hear, I guess you could say, negative ET stories in the media, because this got a lot of press attention. And more often than not, you either hear, oh, wow, isn't that strange? Now hear sports. Or you hear, you know, this guy's a wacko. Or you hear, oh, it's a mystery. We'll never get to the bottom of it. So you, you rarely ever hear sort of like, 
you know, could this be a bad thing if ET showed up? So that was an interesting story, and it, and it came from a, a you know a serious authority in the world of science. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is something that crops up every few years, but it's a first for me at least. Nick, what do you think? Well, you know, I think one of the important things, Tim, is that why the story got so much coverage, and that's because of who the source was. Yeah. You know, um, you know Stephen Hawking. I think this is an important factor to remember is that, you know, a lot of people in ufology think it's significant when, you know, the, the press give coverage to something like this. And you have some people who say, oh, that's, you know, the press are helping prepare us for the truth, etc. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's far more sort of prosaic and down to earth than that. I think when famous people talk about unusual subjects, the press sits up and listens. Yeah. You know, it is that simple. And I think it's like, for example, with Edgar Mitchell, Dr. Edgar Mitchell, you know, who walked on the on the surface of the moon, um, you know, saying that he believed in extraterrestrials and said he'd received information from insider sources about Roswell being an alien event. You know, the media, the world's media did sit up and take notice a couple of years ago when he said that. It's the same with Stephen Hawking, you know, his book, A Brief History of Time, sort of really made his mark. And he's a known figure within the scientific community who's, you know, also known for discussing some very sort of challenging, thought-provoking areas. And I think, you know, this this whole thing about the potential idea that there are hostile aliens out there, you know, there have been people in the UFO community who have been saying that for years. Yeah. But press is like, so what? Because, you know, Joe Smith, who, you know, has got filing cabinets and records, etc., in his basement and a telescope, nobody cares. And so I think it's not just the message, it's who's relating the message that makes the media sit up. So in the one sense, it's good that the issue is being brought to uh, you know, the, the public's attention and the media's attention also. And it's good that it's coming from a source that people are going to listen to and, and actually think about, you know, which they don't do when it comes to ufologists for the most part. But does it actually at the end of the day, mean anything that somebody whose name has, happens to be well-known also has a, an opinion on UFOs versus someone who isn't well-known but has exactly the same opinion, you know, how, how do we sort of gauge the importance of it? That's what I mean when you, you know, you look at the other side of the coin as well. So I think, you know, it was an interesting and significant story because of who the person was rather than that something groundbreaking and new was actually being said. Okay, okay. Greg, what, what say you? Basically agree with Nick, but then I also, when I first heard the story, I thought, just because somebody's smart about physics doesn't mean they're smart about aliens. Yeah, he, he said something which has been said before, which has been um, said before, probably not just by normal people or unknown people, but more famous people. Uh, in different ways, kind of like that Reagan quote about um, yeah. if a threat came from outer space, you know, what would we do? What bothered me about it, because I'm selfish, <laughs> I think by nature, I'm ready with both things, <laughs> yeah. is that it was such a science fiction view of what the phenomenon encompasses. It's a very narrow and science fiction view. He's assuming that aliens are... Um, human-like, or at least human-like in their thinking, and come from, you know, and physically come from other star systems by whatever means that they might not be very friendly. Well, sure, that's fine, but Jesus, who read science fiction 
from from HG Wells on, you could have the same idea. Yeah. I mean, it's not like it's a uh, it's not a new idea. He just he just had his own spin on it and elaborated on it. And it's Stephen Hawking is probably you know generally considered one of the smartest people living. So that that's why people listen. Um, as far as like Nick said, making it more hmm, the subject uh, more high profile and able to be thought about as a subject that's worthy of thinking about for a greater part of the public. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's succeeded in that, but, you know, everybody goes back to the business after that. Nobody cares. <laughs> right, right. No UFO story sticks for more than like a day, so. Yeah, that's the the thing about those the other things you were mentioning, some of the other UFO stories. Some of them had legs for more than a couple of days. Yeah, exactly. That was about it, more than a couple of days, you know, so. Now, should we read? Did we ever find out really what the what the motivation behind him saying all this was, or should we read anything into that? Or you know, that's sort of to address. I don't know. You know, I'm sort of that's in my gray basket. I guess you could say uh, addressing the agenda behind it. But I feel like obviously that's something that plenty of people in the UFO community <laughs> are more than happy to do. So you know, should we uh, you know look at why he said this, and do we know why? Well, you know, I think a lot of people in ufology do do that. You know, it's like when somebody famous, or it's not necessarily famous, but somebody in a position of influence, whether it's government, military, intelligence world, scientific community, comes out and makes a statement that's positive or intriguing about UFOs. Whole swathes of the UFO research community assume that, quote, it's them yeah. starting to prepare us with the next level of unveiling the truth. Why, you know, my view after hearing such stories for years, you know, you go back to MacArthur saying things, or General Hillencutter, you know, the first director of Central, Central Intelligence, you know, back in the 60s, um, Barry Goldwater saying that he was denied access to the allegedly, you know, Hangar 18, etc. Is it really the case after 60 years that all these famous influential people are, are being used to prepare us for the truth? Or... They're famous people who have an opinion on UFOs. You know, I think it's the latter. I don't think, you know, we need to subscribe to the theory that because somebody in a position of government or wherever or the scientific community says something, that someone's pulling their strings. You know, yeah. why, why should it not be the simplest thing that they have an opinion on UFOs because they've either seen one, read about it, investigated it for the government, and decide to say something? You know, I think had everything come together in the course of a couple of years, that would be different. But when you can go back and get significant statements crossing 60 years, you know, like Jimmy Carter's statements, Reagan's statements, you know, how long does it take to prepare the public? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that doesn't sound like preparing the public. It just sounds like well-known people offering an opinion and then the UFO community trying to tie it to some greater behind-the-scenes string-pulling conspiracy. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Greg, anything uh, to add here, or you think we're ready to move into the next phase? Oh, let's move into the next one. I've complained and, and whined enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, like I said, we try, we try to keep it tight this year. Um, yeah, I, I think that's great. Uh, let me see here. The, the next one, I feel like we're almost not going to even need to discuss, but it, it, it falls under the, uh, the next sort of big category I, I came up with, was just sighting and global UFO story, and that was the Chinese airport UFO. That seemed to be the big 
you know, tentpole signature case of 2010, I guess you could say. I can't think of any other UFO case. And, and not, I mean, come on, the New York City UFO thing, let's not even go there. That, that, if that's the second best UFO sighting of the year, that's a fucking lousy year. So. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know what the second best is. And, and the best one is, I, I didn't even read up on that dumb thing because it was a story for like a week and then it went away and nobody cared and it didn't change anything and I didn't see any pictures, so who cares? Exactly. And I also, yeah, I'm all the same. I really couldn't even give you any, you know, any verse about what this thing was all about. This child, all I know is that a, a UFO was over an airport in China and they shut it down, but it's like, it happened in China. <laughs> <laughs> like <laughs> that's perfect. You, you know, know happened Biblevania. Why should we care? I, I, <laughs> well, like even if it was a genuine UFO that appeared over an airport in China and shut it down, like there's no way you're ever gonna get to the bottom of this one, folks. So. Yeah, I mean, what's going to come bed. out of the Chinese news service about that? You think our news service lies about certain things and things get covered up? Jesus, think about the Chinese news. Exactly, that's what I mean. It's I'm surprised a, it got out of there. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. Um, Nick, what do you think? Anything to say about the biggest UFO story, uh, UFO sighting of the year, unfortunately? Um, I, I sort of pretty much agree with what Greg just said. You know, it was kind of a vague report where there were no photographs and, you know, it, it surfaced, it got discussed on various lists and news groups and everybody sort of foamed at the mouth and got the blood pressure up for a week and, <laughs> and it was gone. And it's like Greg said, what did it change? Well, it didn't change, fuck all. You know, so. Exactly. Exactly. So there you go. That's story number two. <laughs> that was quick. I know. Well, what the, I mean, like you said, you couldn't even you come up. have one that talks more about that story or tries to make a story out of it. I, I don't, I guess most other people, at least people that are very heavily involved in the UFO subject, probably would have more to say. I'm sorry we don't have more, but just, like we all said, you know, what did it change? It changed nothing. More sighting reports aren't going to change anything. A huge group of sighting reports over many, many years, um, exceedingly detailed, computer cataloged, and looked at in varying different ways, maybe novel ways, might do something. But not one more sighting report. Who cares about that? Exactly. So there you go. Story number two. We put that one to bed fast. Um, the next one here on the list is falls under the exopolitical slash disclosure category, and that was the UFO nuke press conference. And, you know, I, I hate to besmirch it with the exopolitical brush, but, uh, you know, I was trying to categorize these, so forgive me. And that's also my way of <laughs> eliminating all of the exopolitical mumbo-jumbo of the year. So we don't need to get into any of that uh, hysterics. Uh, you know, is the event a part of the UFO disclosure movement? Um, no, is the answer to that. So we can move on from that whole TV based uh, influence of the minds. But what did you guys think of the UFO nuke press conference? Before I, let me sort of at least fill in a little background, at least on my take on it. I at least sort of felt like this was a fresh way of bringing the issue to the attention of the media in a way that, as I've advocated in the past, at least frame the subject in a way where it's like, A, we don't know what this is, B, it could be potentially dangerous, or C, we, we have to take a more serious look at it. So at least they sort of did that and brought a little fear-mongering in on it, too. Not, you know, not in a mean-spirited or in sinister way, but, you know, to at least get under the skin of people a little bit and get them to sit up a little bit and take notice of the UFO phenomenon. But 
I'm interested in you guys' take on this because, let's face it, this is like the eighth press conference of the decade so far. So, you know, they're starting to wear out their welcome in general. Nick, what did you think of the UFO nuke press conference, you know, overall? Well, you know, I mean, I'm actually quite interested in these, you know, various press conferences and the people who come forward mm-hmm. um, because, you know, there actually have been some genuinely interesting stories, you know, over the years. And when you look at it in the bigger picture, you know, I think the important thing is that it, it does point to the the reality of a genuine phenomenon. What it also points to, in in my view, is the difficulty of resolving it because although we have credible people telling incredible stories for the most part there's never like a tangible you know document or smoking gun thing that validates a story it doesn't mean the story isn't real but it but when we see and this occur time and time again where you know somebody who was in the military for 30 years or whatever comes forward and you know talks about a particular experience they had which is a, a pretty profound experience but testimony is all they have you know, that doesn't mean we should discount it, particularly when it's a very credible source. But all we're seeing, again, time and again, is, is plenty of press conferences and credible people. And what happens? Well, next year, the next one comes around. Yeah. It's like Greg said earlier, you know, what we need is somebody at the press conference who can present, you know, um, the pinky finger of the the second alien killed at Roswell, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's, that's what... That's what you need to take it to the next level at these press conferences. It's yet it's interesting to have ten, fifteen, twenty military people, you know, swearing that they saw this or they read this file or that file, and then have another twenty the next year, the next year, and the next year. But at the end of the day, you've just got a bunch of testimony. It's like Bigfoot cast. Yeah, exactly. You know, I don't want to sort of go over old ground, but <laughs> the, you know, it's like reports and press conferences. They're sort of two sides of the same coin mm-hmm. because, yeah, we get like a lot of material, but where does it take us? It just it just leaves us waiting for next year's press conference or whatever. Greg, what do you think? Well, I, like I said at the beginning here, I I know Robert Solis personally. I've I've hung out with him. I've you know, I went and had lunch with him. I've been at his house and talked to him quite a bit. Um, I think the guy actually experienced something and he totally believes he experienced something and so do a few other people that were there. Now, I don't know what happened there, but the important thing, like Nick said, is uh, that they come out and talk about it. Now, you know, what is that going to do? Is it going to change a few people's minds? Maybe. Although I think by and large people, it's very hard for people to change their minds about anything, especially something that really doesn't make any difference in their lives. Right. Some, well, actually about anything, something that really makes a lot of difference in your life, it's a lot really hard to change your mind, too. But even hypotheticals like UFO stuff, um, I think it's hard to get any person who generally doesn't believe there's anything to it or generally doesn't care about it to start caring or change their mind by having another press conference. Like Nick said, that's not going to change anything. And I don't think there is going to be any finger of any alien. Um, it just won't happen. And, and, you know, and the third level of this, to me, um, just the mere fact of people coming out and saying, I saw this, I saw that, um, I'm in the military, I believe them. Mm -hmm. I think they did see something very strange, all the way from, you know, vaguely strange things in the sky to possibly very close, frightening, um, paradigm-changing, psychosis-inducing things. But the fact that they're publicly talking about it, you know, personally for me, because this is my 
I, my admitted uh, uh, slant on this, my personal opinion is, if they're being allowed to talk about it publicly at a press conference, it must not be that important. <laughs> <laughs> you know, or it might be very important, but nobody wants to listen. I mean, you could, you could, if you could say that somebody has just murdered the king, but if everybody hates the king, nobody cares. Or, yeah, you know, or they're happy about it or whatever. Maybe it's a bad example, but, but you, you know what I'm getting yeah. at. Yeah. Um, if nobody's going to care about the subject, you can yell all you want about it. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Until something, and Nick and I and you have discussed this before, until something in our, the way we look at things changes and the way that we accept public publicly proof of anything changes, nothing's going to change. It's just going to be, like Nick said, collecting a bunch of more reports. So the change isn't going to come from disclosure, if you want to call it that. The change is going to come from some change in human, not consciousness, but hum the way humans treat the way they look at the world around them and how they answer questions. And that's why, you know, I lump it in a lot of times, UFOs with ghosts and big, you know, cryptozoology and all that. There's, you know, as, as of yet, we have no way to prove to people exactly what it is is going on, although, you know, us in this in this area, I don't know if it's a field, I guess, really do believe, think fa fairly, you know, there's a fairly high degree of probability that something really weird and outside of our normal experience is going on. But convincing other people of that is going to be real tough until something has nothing to do with the paranormal changes people's minds, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think if you if you pull the camera back a little bit, on just the year in general and the field in general, I do see the UFO nuke press conference and then tie that in with Leslie Keene's book, which I think ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. Yes, and, it did. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's a good one, too. But so was Whitley Strieber, and what's changed? <laughs> well, yeah, but but I guess the, the, the point I'm trying to make here is that if you couple those two together, maybe we're seeing a change in tactic, I guess you could say, um, of sort of... A push for disclosure, but not with the, you know, the the weapons of the exopolitical movement, if you will. I mean, I might have butchered that sort of uh, statement. I know what you mean. Okay. It's, it's it's throwing a meaningless bone. It's, it's one to keep to shut people up and make them happy, and two, maybe there's a reflective, reflexive quality to this. That if you throw some bones out, maybe some kind of good information will come back to you. Meaning, I I mean, people that have control of these secrets, whatever whatever they know. And I've always contended they don't really know much more than we do, except a lot more reports and a lot more detail. Right, right. But to, I guess to sort of clear, I don't know, just to go over what I was saying again, just like I think that maybe it's there's people within ufology, Leslie Keene and Robert Hastings, that are sort of bringing this subject to the to the attention of the media in a different way than the exopolitical people are. They're going into it with the, we know what this is. I mean, contrast what Leslie Keene and Robert Hastings did with, the Denver UFO committee of meeting initiative that miserably failed. I mean, so you're looking at two complete different things. The, the, the Denver thing, they're saying the UFOs are real and the ETs are coming. And, and the other side of the fence, Leslie Keene and Robert Hastings are saying, you know, UFOs are real and we have no idea what they are. And I think that's... Yes, but, but important people whose opinions should count and who should don't know care better either way. <laughs> are saying that they are, are agreeing with us. I, you know, I've, I've had public problems with Robert Hastings. I said, why don't you concentrate on the UFO nuke thing? Nobody cares about MJ-12. And he did. To his credit, he's concentrated. I haven't heard a word from him about MJ-12 or Bill Moore or anything like that. 
Um, he's been really busy with the press conference thing, and I think it probably won't make a whole hell of a lot of difference. But it made a little bit of a difference, so you know, give him kudos for that. Absolutely, Nick. What do you what do you think about the about this you know this sort of side trail we've gone down here? Well, you know, I mean, again, it, it's to me, it's all sort of shades of the same coin, if you like. I mean, it's sort of slightly off track, but I mean, you know, when people are talking about disclosure and things like this, and it's going to come, or if we ask the government to release this, they're just going to go ahead and do it. You know, it's to me that's all a bit naive. I yeah. think it's it's the approach. For example, you know, there's there was a this is totally different issue, but you probably saw this story on the news with the winter weather, how another bunch of passengers got stranded on a plane for like ten hours and weren't allowed off the plane. Yeah. You know, I think it, I think it was JFK Airport, and um, you know, people said, well, why is this still going on? It's because no one's doing anything. The passengers are afraid to say anything and get off the plane and revolt, so that doesn't change. The airlines are happy with the fact that, for the most part, people don't complain. So when it happens, oh, it's you know, it's we'll just chalk it up to another one of those events and hope it goes away in a day or two. Government does nothing about it, so nothing changes. And it's the same with disclosure. You know, unless the public go after this in a big way, you know, <laughs> the same I'm talking about. With these stranded airline passengers, you know, just people just say enough's enough. It's the same thing with this. If you if you really want disclosure, you know, right, getting somebody to say, oh, I've got five thousand letters and we're sending them to Barack Obama to tell us the truth about UFOs, you, know, <laughs> you might as well send them to Santa Claus. That's just not going to work. So I think disclosure's an interesting concept, and I actually. You know, for the people who spend hours of their lives and days and weeks and years toiling over it and pushing for it, you know, I have a lot of respect for what they're trying to do because they have enthusiasm. And in a subject like this, you need enthusiasm. But to me, a lot of it is just full of naivety. You know, the idea that, you know, does anybody really believe you ask the government nicely to tell you the truth about what happened at Roswell, they're going to simply say yes because 5,000 people who read UFO magazine or whatever, you know, ask them <laughs> to reveal it. I think that's, you know, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. Um, if disclosure ever comes, I think it would be because the government discloses it, but I cannot see anything that would be the, to the government's advantage to tell the truth about UFOs. Why would it benefit them to admit they'd lied for 60 years and possibly even have to admit that they're not really sure what's going on? You know, it only open up a big can of worms. So, it, your disclosure, in, in my view, doesn't benefit the government unless they want to use it as a tool of fear. You know. Yeah. So what you're saying, sort of, is that the end game is too nebulous to even, you know, to even play the game <laughs> in a sense. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like people think people push for disclosure without wondering what, not so much what the effect would be. But what the impetus would be for even disclosing in the first place, you know, it's like I've heard so many people say, oh, the government's preparing for us for the truth. Well, the big question should be, why do you assume the government would tell us the truth? What why do you assume that your truth is what the government thinks is the truth? Yeah, you see, the thing is, that's one of the big things with the, with the um, disclosure movement. They won't be satisfied unless the disclosure supports the notion that aliens are visiting the Earth. If it's anything other than that, they won't class it as disclosure. 
yeah. say, no, we're still being lied to. So it's almost, you know, trying to prove a, a negative, if you like. You, you just can't do it. Yeah, well, you know, the people who the, the people who will be least satisfied with UFO disclosure are the people that have been pushing for it all these years anyway. So, <laughs> you know, they'll be the hardest audience to please. Yeah, I mean, let's just say, hyper, I mean, I'll hand over to Greg in a minute, but just hypothetically, let's just say the government says, okay, we're going to disclose what the real big UFO secrets are. And it comes to Roswell, and they say, well, yeah, there is a big secret around Roswell. But let's, but you know, let's hypothetically, they said, oh, it was an aircraft that inadvertently dropped an early atomic bomb. You know, it didn't explode, fortunately, but we had to seal the area off. And that's the Roswell real disclosure. Well, the disclosure movement would say, no, that's just another layer of the cover-up, and you're still hiding the alien truth. You know, so it's like the government may really have disclosed but the, the movements won't accept anything other than the preconceived beliefs that they assume is going to come along when disclosure happens. Yeah, if you ask a dumb question, you're going to get a dumb answer. Oh, geez, put the pressure on me now here. What? <laughs> what do you mean pressure? <laughs> no, no, just because uh, I'm the one asking the questions. No, 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 I meant I was <laughs> no, agreeing no, with no, Nick no. about the disclosure <laughs> thing. If you ask a, a – by dumb, I mean a question that allows for no – um, shades of meaning for no alternative yeah. ideas for for nothing but your narrow. That's why I said, you know, what, what kind of question are you asking? Exactly. No, I was just busting. I, I was a little up. bit earlier. I mean, if you ask a certain thing, it's, that's you know, it, it depends on what you want to hear. And if you ask a question in the way that you you know, anybody who's been in a relationship knows this. If you know. It, you ask a question expecting to hear one thing, and with your idea in mind, and everything that comes out of the other person's mouth is colored by what you're expecting and what you're wanting. And if you don't like it, you're going to close your ears off immediately and get mad. And you're not going to listen to what they're actually saying. And I think that in a, in a larger sense, that's what goes on with um, some UFO researchers and most of the disclosure people is they, 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 like Nick said, they want a certain answer. If they don't get that answer, they're they're going to get mad, and and I, I my prediction is when an answer does come, whatever it might be, um, and it's not going to come in one fell swoop. It's probably going to be in bits and pieces. And you have to pay attention. But when the answer does come, it isn't going to be what they want. Right. And so you know it won't really be. <laughs> it'll be a disclosure for the people that can. I think there's there's been a disclosure for people that can read between the lines, and it's exactly what Nick said. Um, we know more than you. We know about a lot of stuff. We have no idea what to do about it or what to do with it or, or how to control it. So let's just use it as an instrument of control, fear, and disinformation. Yeah, yeah. And and not to not to beat a dead horse, uh, uh, this is to Nick, but, you know, you, you talked just now about how you really need to sort of engage the, a large group of people to care about all this. And, and, and sort of to what I was saying to Greg earlier, don't you think, though, that the – that this new tactic, as it seems to be, of, of sort of bringing this as an open-ended question to the public, as Leslie Keene and Hastings are doing with, with their work, as opposed to the, the exopolitical stylings, which is that, you know, there's beings and all that stuff, that the ETs are real and everything else. Um, but don't you think that th this new tactic, if you will, is a better way of sort of engaging the public and trying to get them to, to care about this? Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree with that. I think one of the problems is that for, you know, for 60 years, the whole UFO research community, for the most part, has, has spoken to itself. You know, it's like three or 400 people go along to that conference or this one, and they yeah. listen to the lectures and talk to each other, and then somebody writes a review for that magazine, which is read by the people who go to the conferences, 
you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, and I, and I think anything that sort of takes it outside of that, the confines of that box is good, you know, and if it brings it to the attention of the mainstream news, whether it's on the internet, TV, radio, newspapers, magazines, whatever, and also to the public, and also to the, you know, the world of entertainment as well, um, is a good thing because it increases the profile, and increasing the profile doesn't just get the word out, but it often brings more people forward, you know, it's like writing a book. People read the book, and if they've had experiences, they contact you, and that can sometimes open doors. So anything that takes it outside of just sort of preaching to the converted, if you like. Yeah. Exactly. Whatever you think of Close Encounters, I think it, it swelled the ranks of people interested in UFOs probably two or three times what it was before that. Now, how many of them stuck, I don't know. But, you know, whether you believe or agree with it or think it's Serpo or whatever the hell you think of <laughs> Encounters, it, it, uh, it, it did make the subject high profile and probably got some serious people interested in it who, who either still are or were for many years and, and, uh, and uh, made some contributions. I mean, uh, anything to get a few more people interested and get one more sharp cookie in there to, who might have a better idea of what it is or how to explain it or how to go in a different direction is good um, if you look at it on that level. I mean, I, I may have petty problems with disclosure or the way Hastings does things or what Leslie Keene said or whatever. Um, not, not a lot of them, but, but uh, you know, the, the basic uh, upshot of all this is a few more people become interested and some of them may stick with it. And that, that's good because if more minds swarming around it, you're going to get a few sharp ones that, that may actually make a difference. Exactly. And then get other people thinking, and then that breakthrough will come through. Or maybe some psychologist will be sitting there listening to it, and he goes, you know, this reminds me of the whatever, and then these kind of people that do this, and that might be a breakthrough. I don't know. Um, but uh, the more the merrier. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, we'll move on from uh, the disclosure exopolitical realm to uh, the in-memoriam part of the year in review. And, and I guess you could say the biggest name to die, with all due respect to everybody else, uh, was Zechariah Sitchin, who really sort of, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you guys will, at, at pretty sure he sort of set the whole stage for the agent astronauts theory. I'm sure there were people who have said it before, but he really sort of put the idea on the map, and then Eric Von Daniken sort of picked up the ball from there. So I guess talk a little bit about, you know, his influence on the field and, and you know, where, how he might have injected a whole new idea into the world of UFOs. In my opinion, you know, I mean, you just sort of made the the most important points, I think, you know, yourself, Tim, is that, you know, he was someone who was sort of seen as, I guess, the, the, the you know, the, the big uh, noise, if you like, the big voice in the whole ancient astronaut phenomenon. Now, you know, in terms of the media, uh, the press, and for the public, certainly in the 1970s, Eric von Daniken was without doubt you know, the most high-profile person. And probably if you ask most people today, you know, who do you associate with ancient astronauts, they probably would say Eric Von Daniken. You know, but people like George Van Tassel were saying exactly the same things in the 50s and 60s. You yeah. know, the idea that uh, a lot of these sort of ancient legends and tales from thousands of years ago were distorted stories of aliens coming down from the skies, etc. Um, what I think, you know, that Sitchin did was to was to capture a new audience. I think a lot of people sort of view Von Daniken stuff as early 
research in this field, but they viewed it from very much a historical perspective. I think people sort of saw Sitchin as somebody who was, you know, like a viable force on the scene and who was still doing new stuff, even though Van Daniken was as well. I think it was perceived more that, you know, Sitchin was someone who was at the forefront and, you know, digging as hard as he could to get all this information out. Um, and he was sort of the, you know, the, the almost like the lone flag waver in this particular area where everybody else was focused on Area 51 and, you know, Roswell and who knows what else. Um, but he was someone who was, you know, looking back, if you like, to try and, you know, the, the sort of early fog-shrouded origins, if you like, of the of the phenomenon. And, you know, of course, when anybody who's, got a large body of written work behind them like Sitchin, you know, dies, it's a shame, you know, just because it's a, a human being who died, but mm -hmm. also, you know, who knows what would have come, what plans he had for future books and projects. But, uh, you know, he, he was an old guy and he left a, a good legacy of material. And I think from a ufological perspective, that's, that's a good thing. You know, we've got a lot we can learn from and, um, you know, and appreciate. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and as you guys know, because you read tons of UFO books too. I mean, he really, uh, I think, changed the fabric of the field in a lot of ways. He Sitchin's referenced by so many people in so many different books and places and stuff that it's like, you know, his book really is a foundation of a lot of people's theories or research and stuff. So I mean, to, you can't discount that. It was tremendous influence. Greg, your thoughts? Well, basically the same as you two, and uh, and at this point, I should admit to everybody, I've never read any of Sitchin's books in in completely, because I got through about halfway through Ninth Planet, Ninth Planet, and I was bored out of my mind. Okay. Um, but I did I did talk to people about what the book was about, and I'm not gonna, you know, and since I haven't read it myself, I can't sit there and say, well, he was wrong in this and that. And also, I'm not a uh, Sumerian and ancient language scholar like he was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was, you know that that brought a lot of weight to what he was saying, and I think that uh, you would read von Daniken, people would, and if a few years later, if you wanted to uh, graduate or go past Ancient Astronauts 101, you would go through Sitchin's material, which took it to a whole nother level. And another forgotten book that was like that, that looked at it from a different perspective, and was still one of my favorite books, was Gods of Eden. Oh, I love Gods of Eden. And I don't know if I believe all of it. I don't even know if all of it holds water or is even that important. But it was a real interesting book uh, about... Uh, if you want to call it ancient astronauts, but it's more kind of like, you know, medieval astronauts and afterwards. Um, yeah, that's a tremendous Through recorded point. history, um, what, uh, or at least more recent Western recorded history, what the influence of some extraterrestrial or extra-human uh, species, race, whatever you want to call it, might be. And um, that, that's, that, that's, I think that's all, another part of I, I, I think you could probably safely classify Gods of Eden as an ancient astronaut book as well. Yeah, that's a fucking awesome book. Yeah, and the, the guy wrote one book and then just dropped it. Yeah, he like disappeared. So one of those great UFO books that's written where the author gets interested for a couple of years, writes a book, and then leaves. Yep, yep. I've tried to get him on the show numerous times, and he's he doesn't do shows anymore, so maybe no, he just doesn't want to. I, I can't, yeah. I, at one point somebody told me his real name, and I met him once, too. He signed his book, and I talked to him for a while, but... Yeah, I think it's just one of those things where he, I think he said what he's wanted to say. Richard Thompson, I think, did that, and um, and we keep bring I keep bringing it up. The Jim Brandon book, uh, 
The Rebirth of Pan. Rebirth of Pan, that's it. Uh, paranormal book. It kicked ass, and then I don't want to hear from you people anymore. Um, th th those kind of books, is uh, th those are rare. And, it, you know, two of those that I just mentioned are kind of ancient astronaut books. So yeah, yeah. it's even further than you can go with it. And Sitchin is one way of doing it for the um, people that like ancient history academics talking about it, because Brandon was just a, basically a journalistic writer, and uh, William Bramley is a, is a lawyer. Yeah, I'd throw Bruce Rucks, my friend Bruce Rucks, into that mix, too. Yes, yes, exactly. Put out a couple of outstanding books and then, you know, kind of walked away. Good for him, so. <laughs> <laughs> I envy him. Um, so, all right, so, you know, we'll remember uh, Zechariah Sitchin. Also, Jerry E. Smith passed away on March 8th, uh, or thereabouts. And uh, he had been on. He was on BOA Audio two times, and really good guy. And uh, when I first interviewed him, it was uh, when I first started doing this show. So I was really wet behind the ears. And he had an amazing like background and bio. And I just my style is to like let the guests go. And, and he really just gave us this whole look at his his life leading up to uh, essentially like when he had come out with the book that he was talking about. And he finished the bio part, and there was just sort of dead air for a couple seconds. And he was like. And now is when you ask questions. <laughs> and I just never forgot that, that moment. It's sort of <laughs> I always look back on that and think to myself, you know, when I'm doing an interview, all right, and now is when you ask questions. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, Did you ever run into Jerry Smith? You guys, I know you sort of from around your stomping grounds, Greg. Well, I met Jerry on a few occasions. He worked for David Childress. Yeah. Uh, at Adventures Unlimited, um, as kind of like the the, uh, the stock uh, warehouse um, and mail order guy, and uh, he had, one time I think we both got interviewed on a show, and then after the show he he said, "I got to tell you, I'm halfway through a bottle of wine," and then we we talked for like an hour and a half or two hours after the show was over. <laughs> yeah, he was great like that. He was such a yeah, he was a card, as my grandma would say. Yeah, he was definitely a card. And then, you know, his his, his range of interests went all over the map. And he oh, wrote, yeah. What, weather control books, a book about harp. Um, what else? He wrote a book about the Spear of Destiny. Yes. So, he's you know, he was all over the map with his stuff, but, it, you know, it was basically just very well-researched and well-thought-out stuff. And, um it was kind of, I guess they were primers for people in all these different areas, maybe a little better than a primer. Um, and I must admit, I've never read all through any one of his books either. Um, but, but personally, I like the guy. He's, he's real friendly and um, always willing to, you know, help you out. And, you know, I personally actually like the guy. So Yeah, yeah. He was a good guy and childhood friend of Jim Keith, too. So Oh, that's, that's right. Yeah, I forgot story. about that. Yeah, from their story. I think, I think he thought that uh, Keith was, was uh, there was some hanky-panky conspiracy stuff behind Keith's death. I don't recall. I know... Folks, I think he did. I'm pretty sure he did. Yeah, well, we spent the latter, like, 45 minutes of that first interview talking all about Jim Keith. So that's oh, okay. sort of like lost information now that, you know, people should check out if they get the chance. I, I yeah, want to say that great. Jim Keith is one of those people that yeah, I, don't, I don't even know if he ever had was interviewed by anybody live. Because he was dead before the huge, you know, explosion of, of uh, even Art Bell, I think. Or very early before, uh, right, right, right in the early part of it, and they hadn't gotten to Jim Keith yet, and he was a, he was a wealth of information. I, I forgot that about Jerry. That that that's true. Yeah. All right. Now, what about 
this guy, Berthold Eric Schwartz. He passed away on October 6th. He's the last of our of our big in-memoriams. To me, Schwartz was one of those people that had his finger in a lot of different pies, and he was... Uh, uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was also a paranormal researcher, researching yeah. psychic uh, things as well as um, UFO stuff. And he was very much into the uh, the kind of stuff, the psychological effects and the kind of effects on people in cases that people generally sleep, sleep under the rug because they're just too weird. What, what I can say about him is, if I'm not mistaken, is he took the weird, you know, the stuff that other people thought was garbage or too weird. He took it seriously because he thought it was part of the the puzzle, and I really respect him for that. Yeah, like the outliers, if you will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. He actually investigated one of the weirdest many black stories that of a Dr. Herbert Hopkins, who in 1976 had this sort of weird encounter with this very strange, sort of pale. It's sort of classically paranormal MIB who turned up on his doorstep and offered this vague threat and allegedly dematerialized a coin out of Dr. Hopkins's pocket and Whoa. all sorts of weird activity happened in the house in the aftermath of the encounter. And it was sort of like a definitively occult MIB encounter and, and um, Schwartz was sort of the main investigator of that case. Yeah, yeah. I think he was like in his 80s maybe when he passed away. So it sounds like oh, yeah, he, was he was a powerhouse of the, you know, of the very He's early He's one of those era. older people that, that, that I really respected because of his, like I said, his, his willingness to look at the exceedingly weird stuff that was definitely part of the pattern that other people didn't like to admit or look at or consider as part of the pattern. Um, Phil and Brogno is like that. Too. Yeah, yeah. Phil and Brogno definitely like that. Okay, so that's sort of the in memoriam, and you know, all due respect to anybody we might have missed here. It, I did my best, sort of looking for uh, folks we lost this year, but uh, it seemed like it was thankfully a fairly okay year for the, for that stuff. So, you know, and for all the people we lost, you know, you guys will be missed, and thanks for your contributions to the field of uh, ufology and the paranormal. You know, so as one door closes, hopefully another one opens, as Greg said, and we get some new sharp cookies into the mix. And uh, speaking of sharp cookies in the mix, the final sort of big category I had here was the inside baseball stories, The, the uh, with my forgiveness to the Englishman, Nick. <laughs> uh, the inside baseball stories, sort of the stories that, you know, were talked about big time in the world of ufology, but, you know, nowhere near the radar of the mainstream. And ironically, I looked at a couple of, at least a couple of year-in-review UFO lists and sites and stuff like that and didn't see these two stories on uh, on their on their list, which I thought was kind of surprising and in a way sort of naive in a sense. Um, and the first one here, and, and, you know, I guess, you know, full disclosure, obviously I co-host a pop culture show with Jeremy Vaney, and he's the guy who sort of championed this story. So, you know, but that isn't why I'm talking about it. I'm talking about it because I think it was probably the biggest in ufology story of the year, and that was this whole Emma Woods uh, controversy. I mean, not only was it a subject of numerous different radio programs, interviews on a whole bunch of different shows, but also a cover story of UFO Magazine. So this isn't just a one-off story. This continued on throughout the whole year. And for folks who aren't familiar with it, I can't even get into it right now. (laughs) So, so I don't know, click the link at VOA uh, in the recaps. And, and like I said, I think it was the biggest story within ufology easily this year. And obviously it's tangential in a sense because it's abduction research, but I'm interested in getting you guys' opinion on it. What did you think of this whole Emma Woods thing? Obviously, it was brewing over the course of like a few years, but it exploded this year into, like I said, the biggest 
in-house story in all of ufology. So uh, I guess we'll start with you, Greg. What did you think of it all? Don't start with me. I don't know. All right. We'll start with, all right. We'll start with I heard little start. bits of it, and I, I heard that she was I, kind of hot, and her story was really crazy. All right, we'll <laughs> all right. We'll start with Nick. Maybe he can <laughs> give you yeah. some give you some food for thought. Nick, what did you think of this whole controversy? Uh, I've got to be honest, Tim. I don't. <laughs> really? Wow. I, I, See I, how little we care about these. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, almost it's, again, it's, again, it's like it's respectable you know, and pathetic at the same time. <laughs> the way I looked at it was, you know, no disrespect, men, but two people within ufology or aspects of the uf- ufological field were arguing with each other. Yeah. How does that advance? I'm interested in advancing the subject. Okay. You know, that's, and to me, I just can't be bothered to read. You know, if somebody has, has an in-fight. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's, then they, then they have an in-fight and they have a, um, you know, a differing of opinion on this or that. And, and that's fine. Yeah. You know, people have different opinions on who, you know, I don't know nothing about baseball, but I do know that people have different <laughs> opinions about who should win at the end of the year and why they should have won. Um, you know, it's I guess it's after being in the UFO subject for so many years, I'm very selective, you know, about how I sort of give my time to the subject and yeah. aspects of the subject. You know, I'm frankly not interested in, in hearing about how somebody had a big fight with someone about you know it's entertaining yeah you know, yeah but there's you know it doesn't help answer the so any it doesn't give any answers to the nature of the phenomenon and that's pretty much what i focus on he's trying to get answers to the phenomenon and um there's so much stuff going on as you know i get Various emails and, you know, news groups and all that sort of thing. And frankly, if it's, you know, Bill Smith arguing with Joe Jones or whatever, well, you know, let him get on with it. That's the way I look at it. Well, let me re- let me sort of reframe this, I guess, then, because the big crux, I guess you could say, of the, of the whole story was... The thing be- with Jacobs, was it? Yeah, the thing with Jacobs and, and, and well, I guess the... What I was I'm sort of vaguely remembering now that she's had some sort of fight with Jacob. Well, first she was hypnotized by him, and then right. he said that she needed medical attention because she had multiple personality disorder, and she was fighting with him about that. And there were factions on either side of like. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the the big, I guess the big sort of issue at stake here, I guess, in in the story. This is sort of what emerged to me because I I'll be honest, I sort of vaguely followed it as well because I'm, I'm of the same sort of mindset as you guys where I don't want to get mixed up in these fights. Um, but it seemed like the big bone of contention, if you will, out of the whole thing was the use of hypnosis in abductions. Maybe that's what we can sort of dive into. Oh, well, we both have plenty to say about that, I yeah. think. So beyond Emma Woods and David Jacobs and who said what and what happened in their sessions and all that stuff, like let's put that aside and just talk about the issue of hypnosis because that's sort of what the – what the bone, like I said, the bone of contention that came out of this thing was, and in my opinion, it was like, you know, should we reevaluate all this evidence of the last 20 years now that we're finding out that perhaps some of this work has been kind of unsavory or amateurish, if you will? So, what? Let's go down that road. What did you think? What do you think of of sort of the use of hypnosis in abduction and the viability of it as evidence? And uh, we'll start with you, Greg, because I know you just said you had a lot to say about that. I think it's uh, significant that um, British ufologists swore off the use of hypnosis, if I'm not mistaken, swore off the use of hypnosis and abduction research many years ago. And the reason they did that is because 
people are highly suggestible in a hypnotic state. Um, I think maybe some of the early hypnotic sessions, like in the 1960s and 70s, specifically the Betty and Barney Hill case, um, some of the stuff that uh, James Harder did, some of the stuff that, uh, who's the guy from, um, now I can't remember his name, and I wrote about him in Project Beta, uh, early abduction researcher. He's, he's still around. Leo Sprinkle. Yeah, Leo Sprinkle. Some of that stuff um, would probably have bear a little more fruit because after that, like anything, a standardized scenario was, uh, I guess, agreed upon by different researchers, and I think consciously or not, it affects them, it affects how they ask questions, and in, in maybe a deeper respect, on a subconscious level, or dare I say it, a um, collective unconscious level, it influenced how people recalled whatever had happened to them. And yeah, you know, I, I don't think that, um, I, I, I do actually believe that the people have had strange encounters with things that are non-human that, that come to them in the night or whatever. To pass that, I'm not exactly sure. But, um, it, you know, it, Hypnosis is people are in a highly suggestible state, and I think that obliterates a lot of the uh, value of what's coming out of their recall because it's going to it's gonna, you just by being consciously recalling things you start changing them. And in hypnosis, you you it's been proven that a lot of people do this thing where they want to please the person that's doing the hypnosis or themselves, or they want to think what they want to think, not what actually happened. So I don't, I don't think it's really valuable. And then, you know, for the, as my kind of final statement on the thing, um, the first, one of the first people I interviewed, um, Mario Pozzaglini, who was the alien writing researcher guy, mm-hmm. um, the one statement he said that sticks with me, and he had talked about Hopkins and David Jacobs and those people, kind of the second wave of uh, abduction researchers. He said, while respecting their work, he said that um, they have little respect or understanding of the unconscious. And that's that, I think, is the, the, the big problem with abduction research and hypnosis, in a nutshell. Right. And in turn, it's gone down that path where it seems like it's used hypnosis as a crutch for like the last two decades, at least, or at least. Yeah, the, and, these, and, and the other the thing is, these, you know, and Jacobs is a history professor and, and uh, Hopkins is an artist. Now, you can become a good, you know, expert in just about anything and you don't really have to go to school for it. But they, they've admittedly got a, a huge bias. Um, they think they're, that there are aliens coming here to you know, abduct people and use their use their uh, sperm and ovum or whatever to to uh, for whatever nefarious reasons. Now they may say that they came to those conclusions by 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 hard research, and I, I think they did. Yeah, you know, I, I talked to uh, Peter Robbins, who worked on my show. I interviewed Peter Robbins, who worked very closely with Bud Hopkins for a long time. And I said, do you believe there's actually aliens coming here and taking sperm and ovum from people and abducting them and ramming things up their butts, et cetera, et cetera? And he said, yes, I do. And I respect Peter a lot. I yeah. think he's a smart guy. I think he's really careful about what he says and what he believes. And and I had to I had to actually stop for a second. I, and I thought, if I had gone through the same thing that Peter did, would I be so cavalier in saying that these people are deluded? I don't know. Um, that's, that's my caveat. But... You know the, the the caveat to the larger picture of does does uh, hypnosis get us closer to the truth about abductions? And I I would have to say almost you know I'm about ninety five percent sure that it the answer is no or it's um, 
it's a very inexact tool. Okay. What about you, Nick? What do you think of the use of hypnosis in abduction research? Well, you know, I mean, the first thing I would say is that I would, I would qualify this firstly by saying that, you know, I do believe it's a genuine abduction phenomenon. Mm -hmm. Now, what it is, I'll be the first to admit, I have no real idea. I know what it appears to resemble. It appears to be, you know, the equivalent of alien scientists coming to the Earth and taking our DNA because they're race or species is on a evolutionary wane and they're, you know, hybridizing with us to continue their species. That's the scenario that, in a nutshell, if you like, that we get from people who are interviewed and regressed, etc. Now, whether or not that is the real picture of what's going on, you know, is a different matter. We can look at things from, you know, the perspective of, like, my final events book, you know, the whole soul-stealing angle. You can look at it from, you know, incubus and succubus-type stories from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You know, you can look at it, as it look, from the equivalent of fairy encounters mm -hmm. of people being taken to the fairy kingdom and then coming back and find two days has gone by when they think two hours has gone by, you know, classic missing time experiences. So, in other words, you can look at it from different ways. The big question is whether or not hypnosis actually advances our knowledge of what's going on. And I think it depends how you define knowledge versus facts. Now, have we got a lot of facts through hypnosis? I'm not sure. Have we got a lot of information through hypnosis? Yes. Now, and I think one of the critical issues is, like Greg brought up, you know, when you look at people like Bud Hopkins, David Jacobs, they're very much in the public eye. And if you if you go to one of these people thinking you've had an experience, it's almost like you're already primed into one, like a, a particular mindset. That mm -hmm. Your experience involved aliens who took you for a, a reason relative to scientific issues, genetic tampering, etc. And I think if that's already instilled in your mind, that is going to have an effect on the story that comes out. It doesn't mean people are lying, and I, because I actually don't think most people are, nor do I believe that most, or even a minority of the, you know, the, the well-known abduction researchers are deluded or lying or anything. You know, I think they're genuine, honest people, but I think we have to be incredibly careful how hypnosis is used. For example, you know, it's like if the hypnotist asks the so-called abductee, you know, what color eyes did the alien have? Well, that already implies in the, instills, I should say, in the mind of the abductee that the alien had eyes. Yeah. Um, and they said, can you describe the inside of the craft to me? Well, that instills in the mind of the abductee that they were taken on board a craft. Do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. You have to be the wording of the questions in an not just in an abduction scenario in any sort of hypnotic regression is incredibly important and critical because you know it does unconsciously create imagery that the, the questioner may not even realize they've done you know but did the, did the alien have big black eyes well that automate it's kind of like saying to someone don't think of a bright pink elephant the first thing you do, you think of a bright pink elephant. You cannot help but do that. And so, you know, was the inside of the spaceship round? Was it square? Was it triangular shaped? Well, your mind then unconsciously, because you're in an altered state, tries to, you know, align the story into one of those scenarios. Oh, it was a round room. Um, you know, were you prodded and poked with any sorts of 
devices? What did they look? What did the devices look like? You know. Yeah. What What was the uniform of the alien like? Well, who's to say it was in a uniform? But now the thought's been instilled, like the meme has been spread. So those are, those are my concerns. Not the fact that something isn't going on and it's not coming out through hypnosis. I think it is. But it's whether or not what's coming through hypnosis is accurate and how accurate the questions are or aren't has, may have a bearing on how we're perceiving the, you know, the opinions and the ideas of the of the um, hypnotist and the recollections of the abductee. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like, in a sense, the idea of remote viewing, how it's, it's, it's useful as sort of an ingredient to solving yes. a mystery. Yeah. But it, it, we shouldn't be basing, you know, we shouldn't just be sending out troops to wherever the remote viewer says Osama bin Laden is or something like that. Same thing with abduction yeah. research. It's like, you know, just because we have all this information about hypnosis doesn't mean we should immediately you know, declare that we figured out what it's all about just based on that stuff. That should be an ingredient to it. And unfortunately, it seems like there's precious little other direction to go down. I mean, what would you suggest, either one of you, for, you know, further research into abduction? How could we even get, get you know, beyond this into, into figuring out a different avenue to look at the phenomena? I'd say ignore it for five or ten years. What do you mean, Extrapa? That's interesting. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> Completely ignore the subject, do not interview abductees, and forget everything that you've learned about it for five to ten years, and then start up on it again as much as you can with a fresh outlook and see what comes up. Because I guarantee, I can almost guarantee you that it's going to be, it's going to be different, or at least different enough that we won't, we'll, we'll see a new aspect of it. What Nick said about people, uh, re abduction researchers and hypnosis about leading the witness. I I, I think that, uh, and I think he realizes this that, that they're going to say, well, we don't do that. And I think it's not as obvious as you know, what did the ship look like? But there's a lot of other more subtle cues, and uh, just like Nick said, the reputation of the of the researcher and what they're doing and what they've said about the subject. You know that somebody that comes to them has read their books. Yeah. Invariably, exactly. because they'll think, well, this is the one person that can help me, and already the idea is planted in their mind. But I think what might be going on with a lot of these people is a lot more subtle than than the than the researchers give it credit for, and and the and the uh, the, the mold that they've they've made for it, however however it was made. And I think it's a combination of uh, abductee testimony and their their own ideas about things and, and an evolution of that. Instead of just gathering information, I think it's been a kind of a uh, a dance or a whatever it, they've been they've been or, or a, a recipe they've been cooking up for years with many 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 different ingredients, which adds up to abduction, but could just as easily add up to something else. And the questions they're asking and the way they're going about it might be like uh, Dean Radin said about uh, doing PS, uh, uh, psychic research. It's like using the, our tools and our words and our metaphors to try and get at what's going on is like trying to hit a fly with a sledgehammer. Yeah. And I think that might be what's going on here, that the subtleties are lost in the rush to uh, put it in some context, any context, you know. I, 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 that might sound a little bit vague, but I'm, what I'm trying to get at is that um, I think our tools are not – our tools and our, and our minds and the tools uh, – the, 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 the psych, psychological tools that our minds use to get at this subject are 
probably not ideally suited for fitting into the subject and looking at it from 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 on its own terms. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I was going to try and make an analogy, but I couldn't come up with one. So, you know, <laughs> like try, trying to build a fish tank with a sledgehammer or something. It's like, yeah, know. anything with a sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're, you're, we're bashing away at something that's far more subtle and uh, ethereal and uh, uncomprehendable by us with our with our models and metaphors than we, we give it credit. So we're meeting it on our terms rather than on its terms. And, and if we're meeting it in the middle, it's a lot closer to us than, it is, than we are to it. Yeah. The mystery missile off the coast of California. Something or nothing. I have a great fear that this is really something. The United States government has come out and said, and not quite definitively enough for me, said that this was probably... That is their word, probably an airplane. Probably doesn't make it. We both watched the event. I think this could be aliens. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. And this is, uh, it's very scary. The other thing, the missile went up. When does the missile come down? More importantly, I where does the missile come down? You this is something. You put in a call to President Blair Underwood. I knew <laughs> that you would think That's that right. these beings were like That's 94% right. human air flying. Whatever no, comes down this is nothing. Head. This is a movie promo oh, no, out of Southern California. Oh, no, 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 That's no, no, no. all it is. It's no, no, a no, marketing no, no. campaign reality. Yeah. It is nada. Absolutely nada. Wilbon's right. It's falling off the table there. The missile's nothing. Wilbon gets the win. This was definitely something. I'm hey, this game. Well, what do you think, Nick? Uh, Greg, Greg advises that we ignore the subject for the next five to ten years, and it feels like abduction research is headed in that direction, uh, given that, you know, beyond Bud Hopkins and, and David Jacobs, this, you know, they can go off a cliff as far as who's prominent researchers of abduction. You know, maybe the alien hunter Daryl Sims, I think, is the third God, guy. God, no. <laughs> so what do you think, Nick? What, you know, what, what would be a good way of, uh, you know, taking a fresh look at, at the abduction phenomena where we wouldn't need to rely on hypnosis so much as a crush. Well, you know, I think if we go back, you know, to sort of Ballet's early research, I think what I see is, looking at it historically, things could have gone two ways. You know, Ballet was sort of very much into the whole drawing parallels between encounter cases, contactees, abductions, and, you know, historical incidents or events that were very, very similar, as I said, like fairy encounters, goblin encounters, incubus, succubus stories. And what happened was that the UFO community, predominantly in the 70s onwards, chose to go, not to ignore those stories, but to say, oh, the people were all mistaken, they're actually having UFO experiences, but they interpreted in the cultural perspectives of their own time period. Mm-hmm. But and the researchers, for the most part, place it all in a definitively nuts and bolts UFO category. I sometimes what one would have happened if they would have everybody would have embraced the valet approach, if you like, of saying yes, this is a real phenomenon, but it's clearly one that's interacted with us for ever and a day, and it's clearly moulding itself and changing to the perceptions of the time. Right. And my hope would be that like with lights in the sky reports, flying triangle reports, Bigfoot plasticasts, that we will get past the days of collecting more and more reports of alien implants, hybrids, etc., and look at the bigger picture of how and why these ancient accounts play a role in it, how perception plays a role, um, you know, the complexities of the human mind, sleep disorders, sleep states, 
you know, all these sorts of things, I think somehow will come into play when we come to, if we ever resolve the mystery of what's going on with abductions. And I would like to see more research done in those sorts of areas at a really groundbreaking, widespread level, rather than just, oh, the aliens are taking us because, you know, they're, they're on a, on a, on a downslide and, you know, only the human DNA can save the universe, you know. So. Right. Right. But, yeah, like what you're kind of saying is to, like what Delay was saying, you know, is that, you know, we're just on the latest chapter of a long story here that changes yeah. all the time. Yeah, and I think the problem is, you know, and, and I don't actually lay the blame at anybody for this because it's human nature to try and con to construct belief systems and theories and ideas when you're, you're faced with, you know, unusual material. So I, I don't think anybody's consciously trying to just uphold different scenarios, but I think there is evidence that, you know, sort of really high strangeness cases have been pushed under the rug because certain factions of the nuts and bolts UFO research community don't want to deal with the very weird aspects of abduction stories, um, you know, of which there are a lot of weird aspects, you know. I mean, I've investigated a number where people had abduction encounters and then afterwards experienced poltergeist activity in the house. Oh, wow. Well, how do you deal with that? You know, and do I think the people were lying? No, they didn't know each other. They were, weren't connected. But, I mean, I've seen people who, you know, again, consciously or not, have been quite selective with the data they actually, not so the data they investigate or file at home, but that they present in their papers, etc. Yeah. You know, the high strangest ones get pushed to the side because, not so much they don't know how to deal with it, but because it doesn't fit well in the scenario that they want to be true or are pushing to be true. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, just to circle it back to sort of how this whole thing started is uh, kind of like what I was saying, and this isn't really a question, you guys, more just ponderance on my part, you know, for all the, the personal attacks and everything else that went along with the Emma Woods story, the reason why I said it, I thought it was the, the biggest story you followed, you, just because it sort of spawned these conversations amongst people in the field as far as, you know, what, what, how valid is hypnosis? How should we look at this? You know, that, I mean, that story really did inject that question into the field. So, I mean, you know, we may look back on that as sort of a, a, a watershed moment where things changed in a way for abduction research, at least I hope, because it seems like we need to go down a new path. So, you know. I, That's not a real name either. I think it's a, she says it's a pseudonym. Yeah, it's a pseudonym. So. It's also weird because I do some paragliding at a beach in Ventura called <laughs> Emma Woods State Beach, so maybe she lives near there. Maybe. That's the name of the beach. It's just north of Ventura. It's called Emma, Emma Wood State Beach. It's those synchronicities. There you go. Yeah. Um, and then I did have one other inside baseball story, which we – I think it's going to turn out to be like the Emma Woods case, where we're actually just going to talk more about the implications of it. Um, and this one I know that kind of hit home with you, Greg, and that was the Jim that, – uh, well, that was the James Carrion uh, stepped down as president of MUFON. Which, oh, okay. I thought you were going to say it was the Anthony Sanchez um, Dulce story. No, I don't even want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. So, on a, you know, and and I'm sure there's people out there listening, rolling their eyes. You know, what do you, what? Well, how can you consider this administrative issue a, a story in, of the year in ufology? But it was, folks, because you know the death knell has been sounding for UFO groups for the last. You know, 20 years probably, at least since the since the early days of the internet. And James Carrion, when he came on 
he really seemed to inject some new life into MUFON and sort of had a lot more promise to turn this sort of organization into more of a 21st century, uh, you know, network. And then he stepped down and, and seems to have been airing a lot of grievances with the UFO community and MUFON in general and stuff like that. I haven't really followed up on his post-MUFON career. But uh, do we ever really get the story behind that whole thing? And what do you think it means for UFO groups in general? I mean, is this is this closest to the final gasp that we may see from them? I'll go to you, Greg, first, because you interviewed okay. James and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> We're both too polite to jump in, usually. I don't know what the circumstance of his exact circumstances of his leaving are. I do know, like you said, he was trying to change things. Did you interview him on your show? I know you did. Yeah, yeah. More than once, I think, wasn't it? No, just once, just once. He had a lot of promising ideas for MUFON. He was, he had just become the head of MUFON, right? Yeah, yeah. It was sort of like a state of MUFON episode to find out where he planned on taking the field, I mean, taking the organization. I don't know if I listened to the show, and if I did, it's probably because I I mixed it up with my show, because we probably had sort of the same questions for him. But the the upshot of what he said to me, which I sounded like a a giggling fanboy during the show, (laughs) be so happy what he was saying. Um, you know, yes, we are going to start considering alternate theories. No, the ETH is not the main theory, and it should be. Um, yes, we are sponsoring research into DMT and how it affects people and the abduction scenario, apparently, that comes up under the influence of dimethyltryptamine. I was like, what? MUFON is doing this? This is incredible. I'll join up again. Yeah. Um, but I think as a result of that, the, the old guard, which is most of the people that are running MUFON, um, in the, in the, uh, in the main, you know, the main characters in it, the main players in MUFON didn't like taking it in that direction. And I think that's, I think that's what he, what he intimated, what, what he said. I mean, he said it very nicely in his resignation letter, but, um, but what he basically was saying is there's just too much inertia against trying to take the field in a new in a new direction and I I, I don't really you know, I I don't want to try anymore because it's I'm just not making any headway. The funny thing is that he went into uh and he sent me a couple of the, the paper he was gonna do uh, give at the MUFON conference just to see he's you know, I was flattered. He said, What do you think of it? And it was his um research into the um the program in World War Two where they were uh, it was a secret program, and they were intimating that it was something really big, bigger than the H-bomb. And what it was was basically researching to try to make um, tidal waves. Oh, wow. And he found this out through some research. He, I think he used to be in Army intelligence, yeah. and so he had a little few ins there. But what he, did, what he did was he used it as a metaphor, saying, not really a metaphor, but it is, as an example and a model, saying, you know, if you're getting information from, from insiders, look at what was done way back in the 1940s with, with secret information and secret projects and, and high technology, at least at that point, and consider what you're hearing from these so-called insiders that are telling you stories. You know what? What what are they actually saying? What are they? You know what might they be trying to cover up? That it was kind of a warning. And when he um, he sent the paper to me and he asked me what I thought, and I said I think people are going to be a little bit irritated. Some uh, some people, and he said, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, he's dynamic. That was for sure. And and that's the. 
you know, and I, I guess, you know, in a way, and I'll exclude you from this, Greg, by being polite here, and I, but, but in a way, I mean, maybe, maybe the paranormal media should shoulder some blame in a sense that, cause I couldn't tell you who's in charge of MUFON now. So like, you know, maybe I should have gone out and found that guy and done a state of MUFON when he stepped in. So, you know, but yeah, I but guess. I would, I would figure they'd, they'd gone back sort of more to the mainstream ETH thing. Right. They didn't, they weren't, there may be something else going on there. You might be right. I mean, maybe it was some personality conflict. I, I have no idea, but to their credit, nobody went out and aired dirty laundry in public, public about it. Yeah, that's true. And then, you know, to, in, in defense of myself now and, and the paranormal media, it's like, but, but James Carey on ascending to the, to the head of MUFON was like the most newsworthy thing to come out of MUFON in years. So it was like, you know, it just felt like they were just going back to the way it had been before. So, so it didn't seem as newsworthy to me. Now he's got uh, some had been in the past. The last I heard, he had some sort of group. He was he was starting them. Basically, just looked at UFOs from a military angle exclusively. And I, I, people were telling me he was saying that all UFOs had something to do with the military. And I, I do not think that I haven't had a chance to talk to him. I don't think that's what he'd say. But he's just he's just too smart for that. Yeah, he's definitely someone worthy of a follow up conversation on either my show or yours. So well, one of us will have to, the race is on, Bishop. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm just busting you. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm sure we'll both ask him probably similar questions, but yeah. you know, we're gonna te- we t- we'll tease out different uh, subtleties and what what his position is now. Um, Nick, what do you think? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Well, you know, I'd pretty much, uh, as far as, you know, what Greg just said, I pretty much agree. So one of the things I will do is sort of go off at a little bit of a, a tangent. So okay. I'm just not sort of, you know, parroting what, what Greg said. I think, you know, the, the bigger issue of UFO conferences and the, you know, the UFO scene, I think, you know, again, whether con- consciously or not, one of the things that I think has been done is that there has been this desire to sort of uphold, quote, the good old days, you know, when there were a bunch of conferences and you'd go along and you'd see the same people and, you know, it would just be the ETH and nothing else that would be promoted and, you know, it'd be kind, it was kind of like a, almost like a fun excursion or whatever, you know, and then when it started to die off a little bit with the internet and conference attendances weren't as high, you know, you have that whole nostalgia thing coming along. Oh, it wasn't like, it's not like the good old days anymore. You know, ufology's changing. And it's kind of like, you know, I don't mean this to blanket all 70-year-olds, but it's like a 70-year-old is suddenly faced with having to learn how to use a computer. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, well, no, I, what's wrong with my old typewriter? You know, it's kind of that sort of thing, I think. And I don't believe it's a deliberate way of thinking, but I think, you know, it's like... I think that's what's happened with ufology. There are a significant number of people in significant positions who want the good old days to come back because they feel comfortable with the nature of the, the way the phenomenon was presented then. They feel comfortable with the nature of the way the data was presented at conferences and they feel comfortable hanging out with their friends talking about the same good old cases. And you know, to to find out that people are using this weird tool called the internet and they're actually, you know, messaging each other and investigating cases that way and, you know, etc. rather than sitting in the audience at a conference. And it, it can, people feel, well, what's happened? You know, the world's changed. And yeah, the world has changed, but in many respects, I think 
ufology wants or significant portions of it want to hang on to those old days well that's you know that's just too bad yeah you know it's like it is too bad there's so many different theories ideas ways of sharing information getting stories out but you don't need to you know get a ticket and fly to wherever to get the data or share the data and if the world's changed well that that's what happens you know if we all live world never changed we'd still be sitting in caves you know eating mammoths or whatever you know <laughs> <laughs> all right i think that that just about wraps up the big stories of the year the only other one i had here uh and there's no real question behind it, I guess, but but I'll sort of try and frame it into a question. That's just for Nick, since you're from the UK. Here we are. We're kind of we're right in the in right in the realm here of the 30th anniversary of Rendlesham. Obviously, one of the biggest UFO cases uh, of all time. So you know, I guess where are we at as far as Rendlesham goes? Is it pretty much sort of you know we we're I don't want to say we're approaching Roswell levels, but you know, are we sort of on the road to Roswell, if you will, with Rendlesham? Well, unfortunately, I think we are. I think there's, there's one good, I'm not just saying this because I happen to be English, but I think there's one good thing that actually places Rendlesham in a category, excuse me, a category above Roswell, and that is that most of the people who were involved in the event at the time were only sort of like 20, 21. Yeah. Maybe some, you know, a little bit less than that, sort of late teens. So 30 years on, it's like people like Larry Warren. Yeah, they're only, you know, 48, 49. Um, so in other words, you know, the the whole Grim Reaper angle, God will, it isn't coming for them, you know. Um, but with the Roswell thing, you know, it was 30 years ago before people like Stan Friedman began looking into it. And that was more than 30 years ago now. There's pretty much no one left. Yeah. You know, I think pretty much everybody, if not everybody, is still around from Rendlesham. Now, it may be that we don't get any more from the witnesses because they've told their story so many times that there just simply isn't anything else to come out. I think if we're able to take Reynolds from any further, then the only way we're going to be able to do so is if there are more significant files on the case to surface that haven't surfaced yet. You know, it's, and I think that's like Roswell. It's like when we've got the witness testimony and everybody and his brothers interviewed them and they've all written books, etc., you clearly cannot go any further unless, you know, if there's an insider secret being hidden about Rendlesham, and I actually think there probably is, then it's, I think we have to follow that approach, you know, press the files to be released, you know, and just go on the paper trail. Now, whether that will work, you know, you could argue that it did work to an extent with the Air Force because they were forced to change their story from a weather balloon to a mogul balloon. Not many people believe the mogul balloon story, but they did change their story. Now, maybe a similar press could force the hand on Rendlesham and we'll see, oh, it wasn't a lighthouse, you know, it was uh, a spy plane or it was a Russian drone or whatever, you know. But if that happens, then it's still significant in the sense it keeps the story alive and suggests there's more to learn. Okay. All right. And, uh, Greg, you don't, you're, you're cool with Rendlesham, right? You don't have anything really uh, to say about that, do you? No, not really. I did, although I did uh, forget to mention Charles Holt was one of the people at the um, 
the uh, press co press conference on uh, dis the disclosure press conference with the Hastings put together, um, and which kind of surprised me. I did um, since he started talking recently. I didn't. He was one of the people I thought would never really talk about it, but he's become quite uh, public about what he thinks happened, which is which is good. Whether it's whether it's for for whatever reason. Um, I'm glad he's out there talking about it. Uh, Paul uh, Kimball even interviewed him for uh, the Best Evidence documentary. That that surprised me that he said he said okay to that. So yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds like he's maybe warming up to the whole thing now that he's yeah. And there, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, controversy about the Rendlesham case and what was what people saw, what was recalled, what was recalled under hypnosis. You know. All that. I, I I must admit the only thing I've read on Rendlesham was the um, the, uh, the the Jenny Randall's uh, um, and those two other women the the book they wrote about it in the in the eighties I believe. Oh, and oh, and of course um, Peter Robbins' book. Yeah. And now, it's a very complicated case. I think it's even more complicated than uh, Roswell, actually. Yeah, it seems that way. Spread over three nights and involving a lot of different people and different sort of events and stuff. It's quite the uh, it's quite the case. Yeah, I don't know what it's going to ultimately turn out to be, but I think that um, it's a significant case, and and as I said, probably a lot better supported, whether it's an alien ship or whatever you want to call it or not than Roswell is. And as Nick said, that's probably as a result of most of the, all of the witnesses really being still alive. Yeah. Whether, whether they're all saying the same thing or not, I do not know. I don't think they are. Now, did you want to say something about uh, the, the Carl Pilkington? No, I keep calling him Carl Pilkington. Jesus. Uh, what is this, the, the Pilkington book, uh, Mirage Men? Is that something that, that you wanted to discuss here in the year in review, or you think we can sort of leave it by the wayside? I think it's an important book, and it's a great book, and I don't agree with all of it, but then that's it's Mark's book. so, And I don't have any problem with him uh, personally. I, there were some things I thought were quoted out of context in the book. Uh, and like I've said before, he, he gave me a fair chance to rebut them, and I only rebutted a few of them. So any problems I have with the book is basically my fault now at this point. Um, <laughs> it, it, you know, for the record now, anybody listening to me talk about it now, and I, and I think I'm, a, I'm um, can be considered probably a, one of the main characters in the book. Um, I think it's it's worth it to to buy it and read it. That that's my uh, assessment of Mirage Men. Well worth it. Well worth your time. Okay, sounds good. Uh, that closes the book sort of on the, well, it does close the book on UFO stories for uh, 2010. I did just want to briefly turn to uh, cryptozoology because it seemed like the biggest thing coming out of that whole realm was that this this march of new species being discovered continues uh, onward and, and really makes you think that, that there's a lot more out there than we than we had thought and that it's a possibility that, you know, something good will turn up, uh, you know, Hopefully one of these days, Nick. You're sort of, uh, you know, you obviously have a, a big foot, no pun, <laughs> no pun intended, in the crypto camp. So, you know, what was your thoughts? I guess you could say on the year in cryptozoology in general. I mean, do you think it was a good year, a bad year, or, or you know, more of the same? Um, well, I would say to a large extent it was more of the same. But on the other hand, you know, you do make a very valid point, and I think although it doesn't directly relate to cryptozoology. Indirectly, it does when we do find, you know, for example, uh, you know, as as has cropped up over the years, you know, new type of a deer surfaces or, or whatever, you know, or a new type of monkey or whatever, you know. Um, now, you know, something like this, we're not talking about a seven foot tall ape man, but I mean things like the the orang pendek, 
you know, um, of Sumatra. You know, I, yeah. I'm absolutely convinced one day that will be discovered to be, you know, some sort of like a proto-human or intelligent ape-like creature. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And But when we get, you know, every year different types of animal being found, I think that's an important, you know, it didn't solve or even actually add evidence to the search for Bigfoot or whatever, but it does suggest if there is one or two unknown animals out there, then there could be others as well. Yeah. Um, the big, I guess the big issue is whether we're looking for just purely flesh and blood animals. And, you know, my view is that having been in the subject for quite a long time, you know, I think there are a number of arguments which is suggesting that these things aren't just, or a lot of them aren't just hidden animals, that there are weirder aspects, paranormal aspects to the phenomenon as well. And again, how that might have a, a bearing on our ability to resolve these issues, I think, is an important one. Um, but I think, unfortunately, um, you know, it, it's, it has, has been, and it always, it's always been like ufology. You know, every year we get a significant number of Bigfoot reports, Lake Monster reports, giant Mothman-type creature reports, sea serpents, you name it. But at the end of the day, we get more reports. Yeah. Now, again, I don't want to come off sounding like some, you know, just a, a broken record, but I can only say it as I see it. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's what I see is a proliferation of more and more reports and everybody just saying, well, it could be this, it could be that. No, I think it's this. And exactly what was going on 20 years ago, 30 years ago. So, Hey, man, that's why we have you on the show for the year interview. You keep me honest. You keep the listeners honest by keeping them, you know, grounded in reality. So well, don't you know, apologize. I mean, <laughs> the last thing I want to do is, no, I mean, it wasn't so much a case of not wanting to have apologize, but it was more along the lines of, you know, my, I, I don't feel comfortable in saying, oh, yeah, you know, we're on the, cusp of solving this or solving that. I think we could be with Orin Pendek, but for the most part, I don't think we have any greater idea, really, of what Bigfoot is. We certainly have no greater idea of what the Loch Ness Monsters are. Yeah. You know, we, people are still scrambling around for ideas, and they probably will be 50 years from now, unless something gets washed up on the shore. So, you know, but people want answers, you know, and it's like, I'm not avoiding giving the answer. I'm being honest enough to say, we just don't have anything that provides us the answers, unfortunately. Now, I presume, based on your bullishness about the Orang Pendek, you've been following the work of Adam Davies, then? Oh, yeah, I think Adam, you know, I, I know Adam. Um, and I think he's done some great work. And one of the reasons why he's been so, so successful is because Adam actually... Goes you know, out there and does gets it. Off, gets off his arse and goes out there. <laughs> yeah. You yep. know, he looks for these things, and, you know, um, that's what you have to do. Um, and, you know, he, he spends a lot of time doing this, and I think if you're going to put the time and effort in, go to a place where there's a significant chance of finding something, then there's going to be a significant chance of finding it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I draw a distinction between things like um, Orin Pendek and Mothman, you know, which some people place in a crypto category, and I think it's got about as much um, to do with cryptozoology as a, I know, Tin of carrots or whatever, you know, it's um, <laughs> it's it's quite clearly something that falls into a, a far more unique category than just some sort of large man-like animal, shall we say? Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, Nick, what do you think that the, a Bigfoot or a Loch Ness monster or a lizard man or anything like that is, if it's not a flesh and blood creature? And if and do you think that anybody, if 
they never catch one, what will be the consensus after a while? Do you, do you have any idea about that? Well, thank you for that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can look at it from several perspectives. One is that these things are literally just physical animals, and everybody who's reported high strangers, like Bigfoot vanishing in a flash of light or tracks coming to a halt in the woods or cameras jamming when people try to photograph the Loch Ness Monster, which has happened on a number of occasions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's all down to coincidence or people are just remembering anomalies when they're not actually anomalies because it's just, you know, an occasional random event. It could be that. I don't think it is. Um, you know, some people have actually suggested that some of these entities could be flesh and blood animals like Bigfoot, but perhaps they have skills or senses um, that we don't understand in the same way, you know, an electric eel can, you know, electrocute its prey from a distance in the water. People have suggested that maybe Bigfoot actually has the ability to use infrasound to sort of destabilize the human nervous system. So people believe they're seeing Bigfoot vanishing in the blink of an eye, but they're actually having their visual stimuli affected by the creature itself, you know, that it's not paranormal. It, it is the equivalent of like a bat having you know, in simplistic terms, radar to negotiate in the dark, etc. that Bigfoot might have similar but very, you know, different skills, if you like. I know that's a bit of an oxymoron, but I think you see what I mean. Yeah. Um, so it could be that. Or, you know, my, my big thing is the whole Tolpa angle, the idea that, you know, people in times past, thousands of years ago, viewed woods and forests as spooky locations, um, you know, they viewed um, locks and lakes as superstition-filled areas. What's lurking in the woods? What's lurking in the dark waters? And belief systems start to create imagery. And maybe these images, you know, sustain some form of quasi-existence, you know, and they, they manifest in our world. You know, it's like, does Bigfoot actually exist if people don't see him? You know, maybe that's why Bigfoot has to He's always seen running across the road because Bigfoot has to be seen to survive. You know, it thrives on human energy. It's kind of that, like that old adage of if a tree falls down in the woods and there's yeah. no one around, does it make a sound? Yeah. If there's no one in the woods... If Patterson isn't there it, with a camera, does Bigfoot exist? I don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I presume just because the book's been barely out so far, I guess you haven't checked out the new Gian Cassar uh, investigation into Bigfoot. Nick? Um... Not really, no. Uh, but I mean, I've actually, I've actually ordered the book. But you know, I think, I mean, any, I mean, I have one book I just recently reviewed, which is a very good one, is um, Lauren Colbert's and Mark Hall's new book, True mm -hmm. Giants. Yeah. Which looks into the whole Gigantopithecus angle for Bigfoot. That actually comes to a very different, highly intriguing conclusion that Bigfoot isn't Gigantopithecus, and that Gigantopithecus is something even more startling. Oh wow! Um, okay. So I haven't got a chance to read that one yet. I think you know. This is good because they're sort of going into like a groundbreaking new area of research. Um, still down the flesh and blood angle, but, you know, that, that yeah. really sort of challenges, I guess, preconceived notions and ideas. And, um, you know, I, I try and keep up on, you know, all the latest book releases and news. But, you know, I think it's like ufology, you know, Greg alluded to ghosts earlier as well, that we need to somehow get outside of, the confines that we've been in for so long to get answers yeah. rather than more data. You know, as I said, I don't want to harp on the same thing, but we do. And I just, I'll be honest enough to admit, I'm just not sure how we do that. I just, I just don't know, given the 
potential odd nature of all this phenomena. <laughs> how, how we do we take that next step? I just, I, I just don't know how we do it properly. I don't either. I think it, uh, it comes from just people plugging away at it and somebody at some point, um, because, you know, you know, Edison or any inventor or something like that, anybody you know that's really hot on something, on some subject or some uh, story or an invention or something they're working on, just the mere fact of living with the idea, turning it over in your mind and sitting with it for days, months, weeks, years, um, and once in a while there'll be an aha moment. And I'm hoping for that with, you know, with somebody in the paranormal field or, or uh, maybe even better, somebody I know, or, or a meeting of some minds from different fields that'll, that'll add up to something that, that that's a breakthrough. And, and, and I don't know what that is. I have a question for both of you, and I just thought of this the other day because I've got, I got a press release from Patrick Weege about it a few months ago. It's that book about um, people who turn off street lights. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw that. I actually have that book. I got a copy of that book. I mean, it's like it's something I heard about years ago. I didn't know somebody could write a whole book on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's called Sliders. Yeah. It looks pretty yeah, good. That's yeah, it. that's it. A, that's a great term, too. I did, uh, when I was putting together the notes, I did uh, want to ask you, Greg, because this is your eighth appearance on the show. This is like a record-breaking appearance. You're leaving Go Rightly in the dust, much to his chagrin. And I wanted to ask you... In- since won the World Series, so I have to be get back at him somehow. <laughs> well, you'll be happy to know that... Uh, that of, of all the World Series games, Gorelli watched one at my house, and that was the one that the Giants lost. So, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I don't know. I must have had bad mojo that day, but well, I'll have to tell you more about. It. <laughs> they ended up winning, and I think it's good actually because it, um, it's always just like in ufology. It's boring when the same thing comes to everybody's attention every time. Exactly, and and the the question I had for you was, uh, you know, like I said, this is like the eighth time we've had you on the show. We were just talking here about Bigfoot. What's your opinion on Bigfoot? Obviously, you've been in the paranormal field for a long time, mostly delving around the UFO realm, but obviously you know of Bigfoot, clearly, and have an opinion, oh. I hope, on, you know, what the nature of this, this mystery is. Yeah, well, I, I think I talked talk to you about this before. When I went to Dulcie a couple of years ago, I actually went out and, and uh, with David Childress and, and a cameraman. We went out and talked to a Hoyt Velarde, who was uh, one of the a police, like a public uh, uh, safety officer, which I think basically meant police chief. Yeah. He doesn't, he's saying, no, I wasn't the police chief. <laughs> I was talking about, you know, because all the weirdness going on at Dulcie, everybody knows about that. Calculations, weird things flying through the sky. No, it's not all the military, I don't think. But the, you know, but the one thing that throws everybody for a loop is massive Bigfoot sightings in Dulcie. What? Huh? Yeah. But when you look at the history of the subject, there's there's a lot of, uh, and Nick will confirm this, there's a lot of um, UFO Bigfoot connection for, for quite a long time. I'm surprised there hasn't been a whole book on it yet. Um, there we go. Yeah. <laughs> there actually has. Oh, there has? It's just come out. Um, it's Stan Gordon's book, Silent Invasion, which is all about the 73, 74 wave. You know the famous Oh, okay, wave. yeah. The, the, it's, yeah, it's not actually called Bigfoot and UFOs, but... It is. Yeah, about, yeah I just saw that. I just saw that release... Uh tonight too while I was doing my research and uh, made a mental note of that so we're all we're synchronizing here 
So, so what do you think? So you talk to this guy, and obviously you, you've heard about the stories over the years. What, what's your well, take I, on that? I, I sort of agree with Nick here that if, if Bigfoot or any, a, lot, a lot of these crypto animals, so what are the Mongolian death worm, all these things, if, it, if they really did exist in a flesh and blood way, why no artifacts? I mean, I think what he said about the Orang Pandek, that seems to me, like Nick says, it would be probably close to, you know, since it's in the same area where orangutans are, it might be an offshoot of orang an orangutan, you know, uh, uh, phylum or genus or whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, big, there's no other hominids walking around in North America and, and, and well, all the different places it's been seen, um, except humans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and so it's not it's not an offshoot of anything. It's its own little outlier. And you know nobody's ever found a carcass. Nobody's ever found you know uh, what. Anytime they find hair, it turns out to be from some known animal. Mm. So you know what's what's going on there? If there's a flesh and blood, and there's enough people been looking at it for a long enough time, and we've got you know we're so sophisticated with cameras and all that. Why don't we have a shot of it yet? I mean, it, well, actually, there's a few of them. But why don't we have any physical evidence? I think it's because there isn't going to be any. Yeah. Because the, the nature of it might be in, like Nick said, a, a, a tulpa nature or a, 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 um, whatever, a psychic energy form, whatever you want to call it. But something that doesn't exist in the way that we understand existence to be right now because we have to expand our ideas about what is possible and what existence means, um, especially as it relates to how we as humans perceive the world around us with our senses. Yeah, yeah. Through our senses, also our instruments, because they're just extensions of our senses. So that's my opinion, uh, and it hasn't changed in a long time on on cryptids, which is that I don't think they exist in a way that we're used to things existing. Yeah, what you said really hit a chord, because it was sort of like the next thing I was going to say was that that, uh, you know, you look at all the paranormal mysteries, and it seems like we have never solved a single one of them. So it makes you wonder if we're not like sort of kind of to what you had said earlier. You know, if this is not some fundamental part of the human nature that makes us makes it impossible to solve these mysteries. That we are not equipped with the senses to understand them. And maybe the aha moment we're waiting for is for science to catch up and, and, you know, open that door for us or something. I think we are equipped with the senses for understanding these things, but because of thousands and thousands of years of evolution to the point we are at now, at least most of us on the world in in civilized societies and semi-civilized and all that, um, I think we've evolved to not use those those uh, ways of perceiving things, and sometimes they pop out, like with remote viewers or psychics or fortune tellers or knowing who's calling you on the phone or whatever. Yeah, well, kind of like maybe like how they say like for that that stuff, but it's it's very dormant and latent in us. Yeah, sort of like how they say like little kids can see ghosts and stuff like that, but then it's sort of like you know taught out of them by the time they reach a certain age or something like that. Yeah, I, you know, why is that? Is that kind of, you know, when when, when uh, animals develop embryonically, you can see when when, uh, when uh, uh, chickens and birds and things like that are developing as eggs, as embryos, they look like lizards because they used to be dinosaurs. <laughs> so 
maybe the same thing is going on as the as the hominid brain ages from you know from fetus to infant to uh, you know childhood and adulthood is that we're going through those evolutionary phases in, in certain ways and and sometimes they become active um, in certain you know they, they become active in certain people's brains and they're they're able to see these things and a very 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 few of us carry it into adulthood but we don't exactly know how to use it at least in a way that's useful in understanding Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts and and psychic phenomena and all that and because I think there that that's the connection maybe that now that we're talking about it is that there is uh, that we do have the talent to 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 uh, meet these things more on on their own terms or where they will make more sense to us but it's using senses and and thought processes and reasoning that we don't haven't used in thousands of years yeah what do you think of all this Nick you know I'm sort of fully in, in line with a lot of uh, Greg's views. I think what fascinates me, the one area we haven't covered, is whether it's cryptozoology or ufology, why it's important to so many people that it has to be nuts and bolts aliens and it has to be unknown animals. To me, it would be equally fascinating, if not more so, if the human mind could actually, if we prove the human mind could construct imagery that could then be projected outwards that actually was then had some sort of semblance of life, you know, the whole Tulpa theory for Bigfoot. Why is it important that Bigfoot should be proven to be a giant ape? Yeah. Uh, that, that's what I don't get. We're looking for answers. I, I, I'm not, you know, just, I'm not saying my theory is right or wrong. I'm just saying why is it important that it shouldn't be right for so many people? Yeah. I, I just don't get that. Um you know, it's like same with ghosts. You know, I've never, I'll be the first to admit I've never really investigated ghosts because the, the phenomenon doesn't interest me that much. Um, but for a lot of people, you know, they they want ghosts to be surviving spirits. You know, maybe they are, maybe they're not. But a lot of people uphold that theory. Why is it important to do that? You know, again, it's uh, I think you know a lot of conclusions, ideas, theories about um, cryptozoology and ufology, you know, say a lot about the people within the fields. Yeah. You know, not not necessarily from a, a bad perspective, but, you know, it's just, you know, human. the way the human mind works, we, we create theories and ideas and we uphold them. But I, I just find it odd that the hostility that comes along with the idea that it could be anything other than, you know, um, an ape or a nuts and bolts craft. I, I just don't, I don't understand the logic behind behind it. Basically, well, maybe it's because people inherently are like afraid of the unknown, so they have to. They play. Well, Nick brought it up earlier. I mean, you. Why, why are the disclosure people asking the question they're asking? Because they, and they're framing the they're framing the question in the way they want the answer to be. Yeah. Whether no matter what the answer might be, and if you frame the question in the way you want it to be, that's all you're going to find evidence for. If you find any any evidence for it at all. Right. So you know why stick to these old questions? I put a thing up on Facebook recently about uh, about not believing in anything to the point of being religious about not believing in anything. But to be in a perpetual state of inquiry, and a couple people commented on it, and uh, um, somebody pointed me to an article where they found that uh, that whatever idea ideas people have, specific ideas about the world and about politics and about their place in it and whatever else, 
even when, when, when confronted with, con with contrary evidence to, to what they believe, their beliefs are strengthened. They just they they just say well the per who's the person who said that must be deluded or those facts must be cooked or whatever the the will to hold on to your belief system is is really strong in most people yeah and um and when I started really looking at UFO stuff and all that in like the early nineties late eighties uh, really seriously looking at it and going out and talking to people and writing about it and all that. One of the first things I discovered um, when I started doing this was the writings of Robert Anton Wilson, and he had something called a model agnosticism, which means we all have models of the world and how we look at it and what we think. But model agnosticism says that you should be agnostic toward any model, because if you if you stick with one model, you're automatically shutting yourself off to so many other possibilities, and uh, maybe the answer you don't want is the one that's staring you in the face. So, you know, if I had to stick to any philosophy, at least as part of my guiding whatever uh, my my guiding idea or, or set of ideas would, would be model agnosticism. I do not believe you know anything, any group of ideas or any belief for longer than it is useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm kind of of the same of the same faith, I guess you could say. At least I try to. I mean, I know yeah. I'm, I'm subject to the same prejudices everybody else is, but I. I want to try and make the effort to be aware of it. Right, right. Sort of like, yeah, you know, when I'm doing this show, it's like, if somebody's going to come on that'll completely contradict the guests we had on like two weeks ago, that's perfectly fine with me, because here's a whole other way of looking at it, you know, and, and for, for that brief period, that window of the, doing the research and reading the book and doing the conversation and editing it and putting out the show, it's like, you know, that then I'm, I'm engulfed in that sort of idea for a while. You live in that, that right. one. It also helps your interviewing style. It shows in your shows because you're not leading somebody somewhere. To, you know, it's, it's basically straight-out questions that would be relevant to anybody that's listening instead of, you know, a Rush Limbaugh-ish or whatever. It's like, <laughs> why are you so full of crap? <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Since this is the end of the year, obviously, uh, I haven't gone back to look, but I try to at least – tip my hat to the top trends in in the uh, paranormal field as we end the year. I've done this the last few years, and this year, uh, the three that I'm sort of predicting, I guess you could say, uh, <laughs> just don't call me Sean David Morton, but the, the three I'm predicting for the new year are uh, obviously the big one, 2012 is going to be huge in 2011, obviously. I mean, clearly that's going to be the big dog for a long time until 2012. And the uh, the other two are I'm getting a real buzz on financial conspiracy theories. So obviously, given the state of the world, that's probably uh, in line with what is really hot right now. And uh, I feel like, obviously, again, the 9-11 10th anniversary is on the horizon, so I expect that we'll see some, some motion in the ocean from the 9-11 truth movement. And just to get on the soapbox, I think that, you know, nothing will come from <laughs> probably any of those three, although maybe we'll glean some information from the financial conspiracy realm because that's relatively uh, new to the to the scene, if you will. Obviously, people have been talking about that for a long time, but it's really hot right now. But 2012, you're not going to learn anything in the next year that's going to shape what happens in 2012. And I feel like the 9-11 truth movement, it's just not, you know, it's JFK times three or four. So there's no way we're going to get to the bottom of that next year. So, But those will be the big stories I think people will be – hearing about next year any ideas you guys on what you know might be uh sort of like a breakthrough area in the next year you know obviously a lot, if someone hits a bigfoot with their car or a ufo crashes in roswell again you know, that changes the game but as far as where we're at right now 
what do you think uh, might shape up in 2011? Let's start with Nick, actually, because we just talked. Greg just went on, so let's let's hear from Nick. Um, well, you know, I think you you know you just you just made the point perfect, Tim. That what will make these stories big is if somebody really does hit Bigfoot with a car or a UFO crashes again at Roswell, right? And and the public gets there before the media, before the army. Um, you know, joking aside, it will take something like that. If that doesn't happen, what I predict will happen is that someone like Argentina will release its UFO files. There'll be a press conference somewhere with 15 military people. <laughs> you know, a former politician will say that he met an alien. Another politician will say that she, you know, is prepared to lobby the government to find out what really happened at Roswell. And, you know, it'll be something along that. There'll be one or two significant cases. Um, there's only, there really is only one way that this phenomenon or the phenomena, you know, whether it's cryptozoology, ufology, whatever, will be taken further, is if something so radically different occurs to what's occurred in the past. If not, it'll be like every other year. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and that's not, you know, that's not me being depressive or looking at it from a negative approach. To me, it's looking at it from a realistic approach of seeing how every single year in the history of ufology since Kenneth Arnold saw the flying saucer in 47, every single year has followed that trend. More reports have come in with absolutely no answers. Yep. So what, you know, again, why should this year be any different? It can only ever be different if something substantial changes. It's not happened in 63 years. Maybe there's something about the phenomenon that prevents us actually getting the answer. You know, perhaps that's, and it never will change. Perhaps the, perhaps the whole point of the phenomenon is to get, make sure we have inquiry minds and ask questions. You know, and, yeah. Um, and yeah, we may be challenges us. Prove it ourselves. Challenges. Yeah. Well, what do you think, Greg? Uh, you know, I know you're out there in LA, sort of the hub of uh, the consciousness of of the mainstream in a way. You know, with the uh, TV and entertainment industry. What do you think might be on the horizon for the next year, as far as what people might care about, as far as paranormal or esoteric stuff goes? Uh, I think UFOs will have a resurgence again. They've already got that Battle of L.A. movie coming out, which has nothing to do with the original Battle of L.A. in 1942. But it's just like you and Nick said, more of the same, exactly more of the same, nothing will change. And my caveat on that is I hope and pray that something does. (laughs) (laughs) I really hope that something does change the game. And like I said before, I don't think that's going to come from either the phenomena will do it, like Nick said, by doing something just so out of the ordinary and so in your face, which I find highly unlikely um, because of the nature of it, like Nick mentioned, to be kind of a step ahead of us. Um, Or, uh, more importantly, somebody will make a breakthrough in the – how we understand ourselves and how, and more importantly, how to change that, how to change the way we think about things or the way we look at things or how we form our opinions or whatever. Some significant way of steering us in a new direction or opening up the, you know, some sort of sense um, or philosophy that we were not aware of before. Like, like the guy said in, like, like what's his name said in Tron, you know, change everything, medicine, philosophy, you know. Yeah. Um, it's something that, that changes the, the way the humans deal with each other in the world will be, will be far more likely than the, than the, any kind of, 
paranormal phenomena doing something so in your face that we can't ignore it. Because if we if we can't perceive it, how the hell can we be surprised by it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, I think too uh, to to go back to one of these trends I'm predicting for next year. It's already sort of big now, and that's the financial conspiracy realm. I feel like in a way the economy and and all that has sort of, you know, like uh, we had Webster Tarbley on a couple of years ago at this point. Now that's how bad this thing's been. You know, and he said, talking about the 9-11 truth movement, he says, you know, it's hard to educate somebody about Building 7 when they're waiting in line for soup. You know, it's it's you can you could apply that to UFOs and, and Bigfoot and everything else. It's like, you know, this cares about the stuff, really, and they don't really have to. Right. Well, when I first interviewed you, you said that you, radar. UFOs were an intellectual exercise. And it's like <laughs> in this state, you know, who the fuck has time for an intellectual exercise? I'm trying to pay my bills at this point, man. Like that's and I think that's what's it's, affecting it's, a lot of people, too. Anybody that's into it, it's it's, it, you know, with a very few rare exceptions, it's a hobby. Yeah. And some hobbyists have made breakthroughs, so, you know. Right, right. And I think perhaps the the dire straits of the economy may be it, not necessarily taking a toll on the hobbyists, but at the same time, you know, taking time away from the hobbyists to, to really embrace yeah. it as much yeah, as possible. Yeah, 9-11 like. did the same thing. Exactly. Did you hear anything about UFOs or anything paranormal for three or four years? No, I didn't. Exactly, yeah. So I think we may be seeing something like that, and then, you know, I don't even want to go to 2012 with you guys because we still have the uh, we still have the 2011 year in review, and that'll probably be when we spend our time talking about 2012. But yeah, and then in the 2012 one, we'll talk about how nothing happened. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So well, nothing sudden. I mean, if if there's anything to the 2012 thing, is I think it's like some people think is that it was a model for kind of like Kali Yuga or something like that in the Hindu religion where one age stops and another one starts, but it's, there's no dividing line really exactly. It's kind of a, a, a general new direction of things. Right. Um, if there's anything the 2012 thing, that's what I think it is. It's just a, a prediction of, of uh, a, a new direction for, for mankind, I guess, or the world as a whole, whatever. Exactly. Which may also be bullshit. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll save all of our 2012 dissection for uh, 2011 because there's going to be plenty of uh, 2012ers marching in the streets uh, over the next two years to get the word out about their pet prediction. So there's no point in us uh, going after that right now. Is there anything else you guys want to talk about? Or do you think we're all set? I mean, we've gone quite a while, so I feel like we've. I think this has been an outstanding conversation, and we've covered a lot of stuff from at least a fresh perspective. Well, I guess considering we we basically groused about the whole <laughs> phenomenon and said, you know, there's, we're at a standstill and we need something to change. You know, we did cover a lot of ground, I guess. And, uh, you know, I, I hope people listening will sort of appreciate that we're not sort of of a negative mindset. We're, I think both me and Greg would agree, we're of a realistic mindset. Exactly. And I, think, I think that's an important differentiation you know everybody gets into the subject wide-eyed and wow you know aliens area 51 crashed ufos and then after a while it's like the penny drops and you realize that well hang on a minute you know we're just doing what everybody else has done for 40 years yeah we break yep. the cycle and i think that's all we're trying to do and i hope that sort of come across in the in the conversation tonight that we're trying to break the cycle because we passionately want the answers you know Absolutely, yeah, yeah. You know, it's you could trace that point of view back to the first time the three of us sat down at the end of 2008 talking about the year in review, mm -hmm. just from my point of view. I mean, 
you know, I went into it bullish about going over the course of the year, and by the time this year's year in review came around, it was like, let's talk about the stories that actually may have made a difference or may have been important, and, and you know, we'll give two minutes to the Chinese UFO event that, you know, in other places would be a paragraph or two for someone's year in review when, you know, it doesn't quite warrant that, folks. I'm sorry, but that's that's the truth. Yeah, well, it, it depends on your point of view, how long you've been in it. There might be something really significant about it that we missed. But from our point of view, it's just another sighting report, and it just goes in the file. Um, I think that what we said about it will be borne out. It'll be another sighting report that goes in the file. Mm -hmm. And like you, like you said, uh, uh, there's just no there's there's no way of knowing exactly what the story is there really because of the source of the story exactly and and um you know on a on a larger note what like what nick said i'm 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 not pessimistic well somebody asked me on you euphemistic once because why do you call yourself a ufologist and I said I never called myself that <laughs> yeah and he said well what do you do then what are you doing here and I said I don't know I think I'm cheerleading <laughs> <laughs> I, I think like I'm that. cheerleading for stuff that I want to see happen, and and if I can add something in the conversation, fine. If not, perfectly happy to to cheerlead when I hear something that I think sounds new and fruitful um, for a time, um, and might be you know because if you don't if you stop looking, you're gonna you're, you're, you know you're the dead shark. You're just gonna you're just gonna die. You have to keep moving, keep looking, keep learning, um, keep your mind open about stuff, and um, you know. Yeah, let it be so open that your brains fall out once in a while. I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think um, don't be afraid of that. I mean, that's a you know, I, I hate those people. It's like if you don't stand for something, you fall for anything. Oh, please. You know what? I hate that. If you stand for something, you you you, you know, moral things, I guess. But just anything else, like I stand for the ETH. Well, that's all you're ever going to be interested in, and you're going to be pissed because you're going to die not knowing what happened. And yeah. That's my prediction. But, you know, if you keep an open mind about stuff and, and, and keep talking to people and, and uh, not necessarily, you know, keep interested, keep interested in what you're interested in. Just keep moving forward. doesn't matter if you get an, if, if you, uh, get an answer at any point. The answer is, be, be, you know, a byproduct. And if there is an answer, everybody will get it. So what the hell? <laughs> or if you get your own answer, that's fine, too. Right, right. And I think part of the reason why I've become such good friends with you guys is because uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, Greg. You know, the three of us are definitely people who are willing to and interested in looking back at this whole thing and how it sort of got to where it is now. And I'm not just talking about the past year. I'm talking about, like, the past 40 years, you know, and digging into that history of the phenomena because there's so much information in there that can really kind of like what Nick pointed out earlier about the – how ufology was at a crossroads, it could have gone a whole different direction in the valet era. So, you know, there's, there's, there's stuff that can be learned in that realm, I think, that has, has I've learned from you guys and has led me in those directions. So, Yeah, know. well, like Chris O'Brien said this to me, too, and I think it's a good metaphor, even though he meant it sort of literally as well. If you see something in the, if you see something incredible in the sky or somewhere in front of you, look behind you. <laughs> <laughs> What, can you imagine what might be going on behind you while the magician's hand is doing something in front of you? That's <laughs> how I look at the UFO and the paranormal thing. Exactly. Look where everybody else is looking. You're missing 99% of the of, of the implications of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's the perfect uh, point to sort of uh, close the book here on 2010. What's going on for you guys in 2011? Uh 
let's, let's we'll start with Nick because I want to bust your chops a little bit, Bishop, about something when we get when we get to you. So <laughs> let's let's start with Nick. What do you have? How many books are you going to be putting out in 2011, Nick? Now make me and Greg feel like losers. Let's go. Uh, let's hear it. Maybe actually one or the most. What? <laughs> <laughs> I've got one coming out in May called The Real Men in Black which is, I wrote a book about five years ago called On the Trail of the Source of Spies, which is a study of how and why government agencies secretly spied on the UFO community and, um, you know, responsible for some of these many black legends. This one's sort of like a, almost like a companion book, although it's published by a different company, in the, but it deals with the, the weirder men in black stories, like the paranormal, Keel, Bender, Barker, um, side of the phenomenon, looking at the various theories that exist that might explain, you know, what's going on and what these entities that barely seem self-aware, you know, that what they could be, um, like almost like temporal entities. Um, so it's, you know, it sort of goes into some very esoteric and weird areas. And oh, people like it because, you know, what, what I always say to people is that if I'm even going to write a book on things like the contactees or the men in black, I don't just want to go over old ground. I want to be able to try and provide new input and theories and, you know, insight, and hopefully people will, will agree that I've done that. And I think that's an important issue to bring something new to the table, even if it's an old phenomenon. Um, so, you know, it may hopefully get the sort of MIB controversy whipped up again. And, you know, I think, I, I don't say we'll have the answers, but it may, you know, provoke and stimulate interest and conversations where at least we can take some of these cases and an understanding of the phenomenon to another step awesome awesome that sounds good and i i should say here i want to personally apologize because you put out like a shitload of amazing material in the last like 18 months and i have not had you on the program to do a lengthy one-on-one -on -one conversation about this stuff and i promise we're going to do it i mean i dropped the ball in a big way on that and i want to have you on the show for for like a definitive interview i'll, I'll sit down and read like all of the books of the last eighteen months, and we'll we'll really dig into this stuff. So right, I mean, cool. please, I'm, I feel like I feel like a real asshole to, <laughs> to tell you the truth, no, you know, because we're no, friends, really and it's like I, I never get around to getting you on the show to do the one-on-one -on -one stuff. So we're we're gonna do it in 2011, I promise. All right, cool. And now we get to Bishop. What's going on with this Falcon thing? Last year you teased us about it, and then you said when you talk about things, you don't end up doing it, and then that's what happened this year, and I feel like it's my fault. So what's going on with that? Are we going to hear the info on Falcon anytime soon? Yeah, if you keep kicking my butt, it's still sitting on my computer. In fact, Nick kicked my butt about it first. He kicks my butt about many things, and this is this is one of the main reasons why um, I like Nick so much. He's still my friend because he encourages me. Um, and you and you do too, Tim. And you're doing that right now. So yeah, I think I'd better finish that. I've got a. I've. Uh, I think I'm going to write a fiction book, even though I hate saying that. And every time I write fiction, it sounds like crap. Um, but for some reason, I, I. I told you this before, and I've been on one of the shows. I was thinking, and we we were just starting to plan to write a fiction book together, Mac Tony's and yeah, I. Yeah. I was. I, I told you before. It's because he was a he was a fiction writer and he could do it. I was just going to kind of like throw ideas and and put the story together and maybe contribute a bit. And I thought he would do the heavy lifting of actually writing decent, good fiction. Um, but he's not around to do that. So now I've been kind of gathering story material and just putting notes together. And I'm you know it has to be based on some you know a person's story. Otherwise, it's just not that interesting. And I wanted to incorporate all the stuff that we're talking about here and my ideas about it and 
things that will make me think and make other people think and frighten people and all that stuff. Awesome. Awesome. And I, I don't exactly know how to do that yet, but I am I, I am I'm building a, uh, a a notebook full of uh, notes all the way from, you know, I will see a weird sign with something something strange on it, and that will be an idea for part of the story or, or somebody's name. I'll see some street name that's really weird, and that, that'll be the name of a character that I want to use, and I'll build the character based on the weird name. <laughs> you know, just, just weird things like that. I'm, I'm not really trying to follow any rules, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Greg, do you mean like Washington Friday? Yes, Wellington. Wellington Friday. Was <laughs> What is this, a sign he saw? Well, let's talk about that before I let you guys go. What's what's going on with this movie uh, thing that I've been hearing about? What movie thing? Oh, you mean the documentary? Yeah. Nick was there. Oh, the, the one we just filmed, you mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, okay. Yeah, sorry, you threw me for a minute. Um, yeah, sorry. Yeah, we, we basically, me, Greg, Adam Go Rightly, uh, Andy Colvin, who's written the Mothman Photographer books, um, a few others, we went out to Giant Rock, uh, the Integratron, a few other places. And it was basically like, a, I guess, like a an on-the-road filming, like a road trip type filming of us, you know, giving our views on the phenomenon, the UFO phenomenon, um, different theories, you know, looking at the culture in the California area and the history of you know, how the subject kicked off. And, yeah, hopefully it'll be a bit of a, a nice, diverse alternative to you know, just another documentary on Area 51 or whatever. Um, you know, I mean, be interesting to see how the editing process comes together and, and what the, f the finished product looks like. But from the perspective of the interviewee, you know, I enjoyed the way that the show was put together. It was sort of a nice alternative um, approach to, you know, the, the mainstream, if you like, which yeah. is always good. <laughs> Yeah, um, Gorantly uh, was working on doing music for this guy, this guy's film, Sam Fielder. He's from Australia. He convinced him somehow to come to the U.S. Um, with some high-def cameras, and uh, we don't really have a script or anything like that. He would just ask us questions. He's really into the subject matter too. He's listened to your show. He's listened to my show. He's read. Nick's books, my books, the blog stuff we've done. So he knew what he was talking about, and he was genuinely, you know, sincerely interested in the stuff. So it's not like where somebody comes and asks questions and says, look at these crazy people. Yeah. Um, I didn't get that feeling from him or from, you know, and Go Rightly wouldn't have agreed to do it unless um, he had some control over that. And um, so he just gathered together, like Nick said, uh, him and I and and. and uh, Andy Colvin, the Mothman photographer guy, Chica Bruce, um, Robert Larson, who is a um, who is a co-founder of the Excluded Middle magazine, yep. one, of, you know, yep. one of the three main co-founders, um, and uh, as well as Jane po Poyawa, who is a uh, he's a uh, who's interested in weird stuff and forty and stuff, and is a kind of basically a historian for that area of California. She knows all the weird stories. So, yeah, we went to the Integratron, filmed a bit there. We went to Giant Rock and did a bit of filming there, took some funny pictures of ourselves. And we went to uh, Salvation Mountain, which is uh, which some people know about, maybe listening. It's a, just a big hill that's been painted by this guy who got a vision and a message from God to paint a hill. Oh, wow. 
and it's it's on it's like it's been registered as like a national treasure of of uh, uh, outsider art or something like that. Um, and while we were there, I actually took off in my powered paraglider and flew over it, which made me very happy. Um, nice, nice. Yeah, and the uh, um, one other thing about the filming. Uh, I was in a horrible deep depression before the filming, and for some reason, I don't know what it is, going out and hanging out with Nick and everybody else popped me right back out of it. <laughs> oh, wow, that's good. I've been depressed for years, and I don't know where it came from. Well, wow. it just, it, that experience, just, it was like, it was like somebody put me through like years of therapy in three or four days. Wow, nice. Hanging out with everybody and talking about stuff and reacquainting myself with, all the stuff we've been doing for years and looking forward, and you know, this show is part of it too. It just, it, it just, it, it was like being connected up to a battery charger that just zapped me. <laughs> nice, it's wonderful. Don't tell Go Rightly that he'll send you a bill. Yeah, yeah. Well, I won't pay it. <laughs> well, I'm still, I'm still holding on hope I can get you guys here to the East Coast sometime in the future. Anyway, to anytime. Uh, yeah, yeah. I know. Well. It's more <laughs> it's more a matter of financial issues than I know, than I know. scheduling it, at this point. I, but, I would like to put on a conference at some point too, but I, you know, you need a lot of time and you need a buttload of money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, but and people helping you. Exactly. Yeah, it's quite a it's quite a process. So, but the more experience I get each year doing different events, the more uh, I feel better about eventually putting on the BOA live show. So we'll see what happens. And it'll be the best conference ever. After it'll be the only good conference I, I will have been to, or the best one after uh, uh, Kimball's one a few years ago, the New Frontiers. Well, I can promise there'll be plenty of after-hours drinking and, and uh, you know, raising hell. So excellent. Yeah, I that hope we all lose lose many days of sleep. <laughs> exactly. Well, on that note, I want to thank you guys for coming back on the show. Obviously, uh, you know, I, I put you over huge at the beginning. I consider you guys. Seriously, like my best friends in this field, amongst the very best, and uh, not just in the field, but in general. You know, the, as my career has progressed in this, it seems like I have much, much, much more friends in the paranormal than I do friends in, in the mainstream, and that's fine by me. And uh, you know, without your advice and input and guidance over the last few years, you know, I don't know where I'd be. So, thank you for that, and thanks for coming back on the show for uh, you know the year in review special. Oh, thanks, Tim. Thank you. Yeah, it's always great, Tim. I, uh, this interview seemed, like I said, it's it, it's been a lot of fun. I think we've said stuff, all of us, that we we haven't repeated ourselves. We've said stuff that we haven't said before, and I think it's great. Yeah, I think it turned out to be awesome, so I'm looking forward to uh, unleashing it on the listeners. That does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Of course, I want to extend huge thanks to our recurring annual guests here for the year in review, my good buddies Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Check out Nick's website, www.nickredfern.com, and check out Greg's website, www.radiomysterioso.com. And, of course, check out their joint venture, ufomystic.com, a fantastic website to find your daily UFO news. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio listener feedback, and even though the episode is coming at you slightly late, we're going to keep on Keeping on with BOA Audio listener feedback. We got three emails here this week, three diverse emails, so let's dive on into the mailbag. The first one comes from Ed in Vanderbilt, PA. And I had to read Ed's email simply because of his title. 
What's new with Joy Pugh? I mean, come on. The man's a poet. You gotta, you gotta give him that. Of course, he's referring to former BOA Audio guest Dr. Joy Pugh, and here's what he has to say. I would like to ask you to bring back Dr. Joy Pugh on your show. I thought what she had to say was quite interesting. Maybe you could ask her more about why we went into Iraq. Why the planet Mars was almost destroyed back in ancient times. Your friend, Ed, in Vanderbilt, PA. Very interesting email, Ed, actually, because I've had Dr. Joy Pugh on my mind lately because everybody in the UK is all excited about the upcoming royal wedding. And if you recall Dr. Joy Pugh's appearance here on BOA Audio last season, she said that Prince William is the Antichrist. So, according to Dr. Joy Pugh, the Antichrist is getting married this year over in the UK. So I feel like we should have her on at least to find out what this means for her theory so there's a good chance we get Dr. Joy Pugh on the show again soon, probably just for an update, I don't think for a standalone episode. I'm considering doing that here as we go on in 2011 at the end of BOA Audio, throwing in maybe a little half-hour update from previous guests to find out what they've been up to and get an update on their research. And as I said, in light of Prince William's upcoming nuptials, I think Dr. Joy Pugh would be a fascinating guest to get an update from. If we do get her on the show, I'll be sure to recall your email, Ed, and ask her about the Iraq War as well as Planet Mars. Very specific talking points you're sending me there. I guess you must be a Dr. Joy Pugh fan, or these are just areas of your own particular interest. I'm not sure why you tie them in with Dr. Pugh, but we'll find out if we get her back on the program. Thanks for writing in, Ed. The next email from the mailbag comes from Bjorn in Dingle, Sweden. I'm not sure if that's even a real place. I'm going to look it up right now, actually. Let's see. It is. Dingle, Sweden is a real place. So hopefully this is a real email. It comes from Bjorn in Dingle, Sweden. And here's what he has to say. Awesome show. I love it. You've made many a day for me, otherwise spent contemplating a cruel faith destining me to do the bidding of the money masters. Working for a living is slavery, but you help me cheat the system and provide free education. Can't thank you enough. Yours sincerely, Bjorn, in Dingle, Sweden. P.S. Will I be on your no-fly list for mailing you praise? Thank you so much for writing in, Bjorn. You know we love to hear from our international listeners here on the program. Sweden, another fantastic country that we can plant the BOA flag in. Although I'm pretty sure we have heard from folks in Sweden. And of course, we did feature Klaus Svahn from UFO Sweden on the program in the past. What a uh, very thoughtful and well-written and almost poetic email here from Bjorn. I really uh, am humbled once again that BOA Audio is helping you make it through another working day, my friend. So keep up the good work, whatever you do over there in Sweden, and we're happy to be providing you with the entertainment that we can here to make your workday go by a little faster. I don't know if you're going to be on the no-fly list for emailing me, but I'm not on any no-fly list, so you should be cool. Don't worry about it, buddy. But if something happens, let us know. (laughs) So you can effectively kill BOA Audio listener feedback. (laughs) And the final email comes from Miriam, a.k.a. Meme, a.k.a. CNS, or Universal Fluff, depending on which forum. That's a very comprehensive signature, but that's who it's coming from. Here is what she has to say. I didn't know you are on Facebook and other social networks, probably because I have been avoiding them like the swine flu, LOL. I am sending you a friend request. Facebook is currently the only one I am involved in, and often I am not happy with that. 
Do I really need to know that Daisy May found a jewel, is trying to send me an egg, or just got another pig for the farm? I don't think so. I block those. Don't expect any messages like that from me unless I go senile. By the way, really enjoyed Dr. Beachcombing's interview. What a great show. Later, dude. Miriam, a.k.a. Meme, a.k.a. CNS or Universal Fluff, depending on which forum. Thank you for writing in, Miriam. Uh, chances are she's not even going to hear this because we always say at the end of the program the various social networks that I'm on, so I don't know how she wouldn't know that unless she doesn't listen to the end of the show. So, Miriam, where are you? Are you listening? Whether she's listening or not, I totally agree with Miriam on the point of Facebook and these crazy games and things they have. I block all those, too, so don't worry about it, Miriam. I won't be sending you any messages like that, either. And while we're on the subject of crap social networks, I think I'm on the verge of shutting down my MySpace page. I'm hearing that MySpace is going to be shut down by June, so I might just wait it out and have MySpace shut down before I shut down the page there, but I don't think I've logged into my MySpace page in about three or four months, so it's definitely going the way of the dinosaurs. The best places to find me on social network sites are Facebook and Twitter, although I don't necessarily tweet all that much. I sort of tie that more into my Facebook. But anyway, there's my update on uh, my standing in the social network world. Thank you for running in, Miriam, a.k.a. Meme, a.k.a. CNS, or Universal Fluff. Personally, I prefer Universal Fluff as your name. I think that's the catchiest. No matter how you slice it, thank you for writing in, Miriam, and uh, I'm happy to have you as a friend on Facebook. Just don't poke me. That'll do it for BOA Audio listener feedback this week. Thank you for writing in, Universal Fluff, Bjorn in Dingle, Sweden, and Ed in Vanderbilt, PA. If you want to be a part of future installments of BOA Audio listener feedback, there's a number of ways to do it. Simply go to banalofamerica.com, B-I-N-N-A-L-L of America.com, and click the contact button, or write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the final method is a little bit more interactive. It is the BOA forum, theusofe.com, T-H-E-U-S-O-F-E.com. It's BOA's paranormal playground, a place where a lot of cool folks discuss the world of the esoteric, and the world of pop culture as well. And as noted, you can find me on Facebook and Twitter. We'll eliminate the MySpace plug here since there's no point in finding me there. So befriend me, follow me, poke me. It's all good. I'd be happy to be your friend on Facebook and to follow you on Twitter. No matter how you reach me, I read all correspondence from BOA Audio listeners. I'm woefully behind on writing people back, but I've got a couple of free days coming up where I will definitely dig into the BOA inbox and start answering the folks who have been patiently awaiting hearing from me. And, not like you need me to mention it here, but if you write to us, we may use it on BOA Audio listener feedback, so please note if you don't want us to read something, and if you do, make it pithy or hilarious or international, and that'll move it to the top of the pile. Up next, allow me to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist Annie Carolin, and our webmaster Jeremy Boston. In the last week or so, we've got some great new stuff from Leslie and Regan Lee, and we've got Marla Pena coming back. As longtime BOA Audio listeners may recall from an end of the show, shout out, Marla gave birth to her son, Alan, 
way back around the end of BOA Audio Season 5 and has been taking care of business at home since then. But she's coming back, and she's coming back in a big way at BOA very, very soon. Now, last time around, we put the call out for potential future BOA writers, new columnists for the website. We've got a couple of very good leads so far, but let's extend the clarion call once again. If you're interested in writing a column for Banal of America, we are interested in hearing from you. I can't make any guarantees, but there's a good chance we can bring you into the team sometime here in 2011. Hopefully, the sooner the better. So if you feel like you have a voice and you feel like you have something to say and you want to write for BOA, shoot me an email, get in touch with me, and we'll get the wheels in motion to hopefully beam you up to the mothership. As always, allow me to remind you once again that if you're only listening to BOA Audio and you're not reading the columns at Banal of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search for esoteric news and opinion. With that said, now's the time of the program where we turn to you and pass the basket around the audience and ask folks to make a donation to Banal of America and BOA Audio. There's two ways to do it. You can go to banalofamerica.com and click the PayPal button. That's simple, secure, and they'll walk you through the whole process. If you don't trust the Internet and you want to donate via snail mail, you can mail your donations to Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, P-I-N-E-H-U-R-S-T, Mass 01866. And if you're going to make a snail mail donation, please include an email address so I can shoot you a line and say thanks. And please make your donation payable to Tim Benall, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, instead of Benall of America, because my bank is anal, and they will not cash those checks, and we'll have to chase you down and try and get it all straightened out, and nobody wants that. So please help us out. Let's cut the problem off at the pass and make your donation payable to Tim Benall. As if you need me to remind you folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the audio series and the website up and running, freely available and commercial free for all of our great listeners and readers the world over. And allow me to thank all the folks who have stepped up to the plate here already over the course of Season 6. It's been humbling and awe-inspiring, so thank you to all the folks who have been making donations here over the last five episodes in Season 6. You guys are awesome. Next week on the program, much like this week, we're welcoming back an old friend of the show, talking about one of the most popular guests in BOA Audio history, Extreme Explorer Adam Davies. Adam has been up to all kinds of crazy adventures in the last year, and he's going to be telling us all about them. He went to India in search of the Mandy Barung, a very mysterious creature that's said to lurk in parts of India. And the really cool part about it is that it is a very obscure creature and has been very scantily researched. So when Adam went over there, he got a ton of amazing information that really hasn't gotten out there. So we're going to find out a lot about this mysterious creature, the Mandy Barung. And Adam's going to take us up close and personal on his journey to India to search for information and search for the Mandy Barung. It's a very exciting information, very enlightening stuff from Adam Davies. Plus, we're going to hear an update on his research into the Orang Pendek. He got some amazing results 
to the DNA tests from his last expedition. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about the Orang Pendak because as you heard here on the Year in Review episode, Nick Redfern's very bullish about the potential for a breakthrough on the Orang Pendak. Personally, I'm also very bullish on this. I feel like we are very close to the Orang Pendak. I feel like it is definitely a creature that just may be proven true sometime in the not-too-distant future. And if it is, there's a very, very good chance that we're going to be thanking Adam Davies for that breakthrough. He'll be back on BOA Audio next week on the program. Always fun talking to Adam Davies. We were joking about it towards the end of the conversation. These back and forth between him and I are definitely the sort of thing you'd hear down the road in the pub and we really cut loose and have a good time talking about these strange creatures and his really daring, breathtaking, and sometimes hilarious adventures. And on that note, let's close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks once again to Nick Redfern and Greg Bishop. Big, big thanks also to the folks who wrote in for BOA Audio listener feedback, Ed, Bjorn, and Miriam. And finally, of course, I want to extend huge, huge thanks to all you folks out there, the BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. You keep coming back every time around, and I really, really appreciate it. So once again, thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.